Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn from Focus Compounding. Sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? Uh, it's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you are joining us, first of all, welcome. Thank you so much for tuning in with us. Be sure to check out all the content that we put out on the internet. You're watching us right now on YouTube. Hit the subscribe button. If you're listening to us right now on the podcast side of things, hit the subscribe button. Share our podcast with people. Uh, follow me on Twitter at, at Focus Compound. That's the best place to get everything that we put out into the investment universe. Uh, and then go to focuscompound.com to get investment write-ups. Uh, we do have a free section on there, uh, an archive of all of Jeff's old write-ups going back to 2005. And we do have a paid section as well. But if you like free stuff, uh, you could go to uh, the free content section of the website. And then, of course, if you want to learn more about our money management services, we do have a hedge fund arm and we do have a managed account arm. The qualifications for uh, both products are different, but to learn more about that, you could go to focuscompound.com and hit that invest with us tab. Uh, so, Jeffrey, how's it going? What's new in your world? Uh, it's going well. Did you see the uh, new Top Gun movie yet? No. I'm I can't sure. believe you haven't seen it. This nope. is so <laughs> shocking to me. They've done over a billion dollars at the box office. And Jeff Gannon, the movie buff, who goes to see one movie per week, yeah. serial moviegoer, has not seen it. I saw Jurassic World last weekend. I have seen that one, yeah. I did not see the previous one. I mean, I haven't even okay. seen Jurassic Park since like the Jurassic Park original one on VHS. Okay. Um, but I did see the Jurassic World and there was a lot of people in there. I know we keep saying people. it, movie theaters are back. Movie theaters are back. Mm -hmm. um, so before we jump into the topic, which is really just a bunch of questions, it's been a, a while since we've done a full-on Q&A from everybody, um, we're going to talk about what's going on in the market. Uh, current market, where we sit today, June 28th, 2022, S&P 500 is down 18%. Um, basically been just kind of sitting in a range. I've said that like the past three weeks that we've recorded. 10-year yield, 3.221%. Crude oil, $110 a barrel. Natural gas, 669 Um, I thought this was interesting. Jacob McDonough, a friend of the pod, who also wrote the book Capital Allocation, mm -hmm. which we did a series on. He said the yen has declined 17% versus the dollar in the past year. This is a major change for the currency and is the lowest the yen has been in a few decades. We've talked a little bit about that because we met mm -hmm. some uh, investors in Omaha that I think focus, I don't want to say exclusively, but at least a portion of his portfolio is on Japanese net nets. And right. he had mentioned to us, mm -hmm. we were just walking down the street and we struck up a conversation and he had said that uh, the net nets have done fine or his stocks in, right. in Japan have done fine, but the yen being down so much year to date has basically made it a washer, maybe a little bit right. more. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely true. Yeah, the, the yen's very weak versus the dollar. Um, and also just weak in general. Um, and also inflation expectations in Japan and actual inflation are a lot lower too. So that's even more interesting. Of course, interest rates are lower. Um, and you read the daily shot, so you know they graph those things. Uh -huh. uh, and you can see how they're trying to maintain. Um, so they have yield curve control in Japan, really just one point in the yield curve, um, which the U.S. hasn't done since just after World War II. Um, 
And actually, I was mentioning that Bernanke book that I had read. Okay. And in one chapter, he talks about that idea because a lot of it was um, uh, a lot of that book is looking at unorthodox monetary policy stuff, things they could take from other countries. And so the uh, people had argued for a long time that one thing they should have considered is doing what Japan does. Um, but then he explains why he doesn't think the Federal Reserve would be capable of maintaining a set um, uh, a set yield on something like the 10-year, which is what Japan does. They, they The reason why the 10-year yields what it does is because the central bank insists that it'll maintain that, basically, um, holding it like you would a peg. And uh, we'll see if that they manage to do that or abandon that at some point. Just in general, do you have any thoughts towards that? you think the U.S. should implement stuff like that? or uh, I think what Branky said is true, which is that it, it would be very difficult to maintain. We saw that with... Um, things that were meant to be uh, use arbitrage to um, work out in terms of crypto stuff. Uh, a lot of people underestimate how difficult that is. Um, you know, he talks about that, how you'd have to, in, in some cases, buy an unlimited amount. And uh, U.S. treasuries are much more liquid um, than Japanese treasuries. And it's a very big market. And that would be something the Fed's never done on that scale like it would have to do. Um, and, and so a lot of it would be based on whether um, the market did the work for you. And as we saw, like I was saying with the crypto stuff, sometimes it doesn't, and then you run into that problem. Uh, and so things that you think should be uh, an arbitrage or maintain it may not. So Japan does it though. And uh, it is very interesting from a stock perspective because obviously if the currency is really cheap versus the currency that you're exchanging to buy into it, um, then that makes the local market more attractive to you, uh, potentially. So, whereas when I invest in Japan previously, it was the opposite. You expected to lose money on, on the, um, and I did lose money on the, um, on the yen, uh, weakening. Could this be a situation like with the fed funds rate being at basically nothing when you invest in frost and your thesis was, this is just not like a normal range. So we don't know when it's going to normalize, but you don't take a macro perspective, but it was just very obvious that on like a historical basis, the Fed funds rate was very low. I mean, would you ever take that sort of thought process and apply it to looking for stocks in Japan because the yen is very weak? Yeah. At this point? Yeah, uh, I, I would. When looking at other countries, I look at the currency. Um, what do you look for? Like, what are some things well, that the stick main out to are, you? I mean, there, there's a theoretical framework for thinking about it, but the main thing is purchasing power parity. So in theory, purchasing power parity, um, yeah, in the long run, purchasing power parity, what inflation is going to be, and um, interest rates would be your reasons for why the currency would be priced the way it is and whether it makes sense. Um, if you get a lot more value for your money by buying in another country, then uh, it's something to consider. I try to avoid countries that have what seem to be very overvalued currencies and to look more towards those that have, uh, you know, more undervalued currencies. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of momentum and stuff in these things. So it's very possible that you would, you know, um, I, I wouldn't try to predict currency moves. Um, over shorter periods of time, but over a longer period of time, buying into a currency that's well, has a lower value um, in terms of purchasing power parity would make sense to me. Um, and certainly avoiding ones that are extremely expensive. I think that's been very helpful. Um, you could hedge it, you know, as your other option. 
Which you typically don't do. Correct. I think that hedging, it doesn't make a lot of sense um, for a few reasons. One, uh, I don't like it because to maintain a hedge like that, you have to actually make the decision continuously to maintain the hedge. Um, so that's different than being like short, uh, common stock and long convertible preferred or something like that. That's not something that requires you to continuously do it. Um, you're not constantly making the decision. In my experience, uh, the pro a large problem with hedging is that people do not, even though they think they will maintain a full hedge at all times, they decide to, it gets too difficult for them. So like, um, people who short things or something like that, like say they want to invest in Japan, like this has gone back decades. Japan was very overvalued in the late eighties or, uh, to the very, very early nineties. And, uh, people would be like short, um, the index, but then they would stop shorting it, uh, or to the same extent, uh, after they had large losses on it, you know, and, uh, certainly for professionals, that's a big issue. If you're having showing large losses all the time, um, that's also companies, there are companies that hedge oil prices and hedge cotton prices. And, um, this is going back 10 years or so and, uh, did not maintain a full hedge at the times when it would have been most beneficial because they both, you know, spiked to crazy levels and they weren't hedged fully in those cases. So do you think it's like a cost thing or is it more like a logistic thing that you think people eventually oh, take the hedge off? It's psychological. Okay. So yeah. it's like they're looking and thinking about the price too much and like, oh, I'm just wasting money. I'm not going to hedge anymore. Right. Well, like when would the best time to have been hedged against like, say the NASDAQ going down would be, or say the, um, arc innovation type stocks going down or something. It's at a point at which you've just had extreme, if you were hedging, you've had extremely high losses mm -hmm. that you're showing. And so it becomes, um, difficult psychologically to be fully hedged after you've just for a couple of years in a row had really bad losses. Um, so that's one reason why the other reason why is I think that it provides some diversification. Um, it's not really related, you know, if you're picking, um, random countries that you're investing in to pick their stocks, um, it just adds sort of, um, something that's unlikely to be all that highly correlated to other things in your portfolio. So why does it really matter that you want to hedge it? Um, you know, it's fine to, hedge things if there's a real risk there versus other things that you're doing. So it would make sense. Um, like it, it would make sense if you're in certain kinds of stocks and you need to hedge things against interest rates moving, that would affect everything in your portfolio, you know, um, things that present real issues of large losses that way. I don't know what exactly would be the things that you need to hedge against in terms of a specific currency in some other country. Um, and especially considering that's probably not that huge a part of your portfolio. Um, so that's why I want to do it. But I think uh, a lot of people do prefer it because it, it does increase the odds that you will be right and it will pay off the way that you expect. And so I think it can be very frustrating to people if they make an investment, they're right about that investment, and then it turns out not to really make the money. Sure. Mm -hmm. And so that's why they would hedge it. Because it's um, something too that they really can't, I guess, control. I mean, not that you could control when uh, or if you're going to make money on a stock, but I could see that being like this other factor that could make the experience just more annoying if you lose money, but you're right on the stock. Right. And then the other thing is just what's the point of hedging in terms of what you're trying to do? Um, you're hedging so that when you do these things in other countries, you get back the same amount of dollars. Basically, you're saying that I want to do this as if it was in dollars in another country. Um, is that really the point of investing? You know, what's inflation right now? So getting back the exact same amount of dollars is going to get you back the exact same amount of purchasing power. 
Um, what's your goal over a long period of time is to, you know, probably grow the purchasing power that you have. So um, I just don't see it from that perspective. Like I would see it completely if you're a, you know, a life insurance company. And of course you're hedging that because you're, you need exactly dollars. You don't need something else. You mm -hmm. need a certain amount of dollars. It makes perfect sense in those things. I'm just talking about for an individual investor doing this over a long period of time. So like Japan, I didn't hedge and the returns were still um, much better in dollar terms, even with losses in the end, then, um, then they were in any other, you know, sorts of things I invested in. So it wasn't a problem. Do you remember how much the currency lost? I think about 20% a year is what it wow. averaged out to annualized. Yeah. Wow. Kind of curious, when's the last time you've actually sat down and looked at a bunch of stocks in Japan? Well, I do read the Japan company handbook. So like a couple months ago, and I then, went through all that. Yeah. So what happens? I mean, is that like a, a monthly periodical that comes out? Quarterly. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a book. It's, it just lists basically every Like a value major. line. Like a value line. It's yeah. not as detailed as value line, unfortunately. Uh, the description is much better. The company descriptions are very good. But the uh, you only get a few years of, of fast history. You know? What are you typically looking for? I mean, are you just doing like a snap judgment, basically? Mm -hmm. Like what we do on QuickFS? I mean, yeah. see if it's a business that you could conceptually understand what they're doing and then look at the numbers sure see if it's a net net um see if it's a business that uh that looks good on the numbers in terms of what it's it's progression has been over a few years um look at certain industries see if some industries are are um uh, as a group are undervalued those sorts of things Would so you, like there are car dealers in japan and you can look car dealers in japan versus car dealers in the uk versus car dealers in the u.s you know what are the relative valuations between them um, you know, you can compare lots of other sorts of things that, um, are the same in different countries. Would you ever buy a Japanese stock that wasn't a net net? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I actually have. I did buy, it. uh, well, not really almost. Uh, I, I bought a stock that was pretty, very close to being a net net, depending on how you define it. But I didn't buy it because it was a net. I bought Nintendo when it was very close to, close to the cash that it had. Which is, you know, not just cash, it's all their securities and stuff. But it, it was technically not a net net, but it was very, very cheap. How would you think about the culture difference? We met with a person in Omaha that worked at an activist hedge fund in Japan. And we were talking through the differences in culture, differences in thoughts towards capital allocation, stuff like mm -hmm. that. Would you go into this thought process similar to how you would just judge any company in the West? where you would look at what they've done and assume, okay, they've had a buyback plan in place or they've actually bought back stock in the past, so maybe they'll buy back stock in the future. I mean, how would you kind of work through the differences of capital allocation, thoughts towards running a public company, stuff like that? Is that tougher? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's more frustrating for investors from the United States and, and certain other countries um, because, I mean, they're frustrated enough in U.S. companies where they think that that they have an idea for what um, should be done in terms of capital allocation management's not doing it and they're not happy about it. Um, but in some ways, it's as predictable, you know, for some Japanese companies, for some not. Some expand into other things that they they probably shouldn't and some are more diversified. They're, they're, they're some more diversified, very small Japanese companies than you see in the US. It's very unusual to have US companies that are very small and are not fairly pure play things. And in Japan, it's much more common. Mm -hmm. um, so you see more of that. But um, in terms of like larger companies, um, 
I, you know, their, their capitalization isn't something that's very exciting usually, but it's not that hard to predict what it might be. Um, with net nets, you know, you don't usually have a good situation that way in terms of what the capital allocation is, but you don't have that usually in, in the U.S. or anywhere else. Um, otherwise, it wouldn't be a net net usually. It's just interesting thinking through like the different cultures and what it means in that culture to be public and their thoughts towards being a public company or capital allocation. I mean, we've spoken about how in Australia, typically when you go public, it's basically for the founding members of the CEO to retire. Um, in Japan, you know, running a public company could be very much like an honor thing. In the, the United States could be, they want to make as much money as possible. It's just the different well, the cultures. Now they're usually an exit for uh, um, venture capital or private equity or something like that. It seems to be the most common things that you see now. That's what's forcing the issue sort of. In some cases, it's also to compensate employees who have a lot of stock, but usually mm -hmm. it's those other things. Um, yeah, but there are other countries where I didn't like the capital allocation for different reasons um, uh, that you see the same. I mean, there are a couple of UK companies where I was very unhappy with the capital allocation and avoided the stock because of that. Um, one of them is what became Naked Wines. We talked a little bit about that. Have you seen that stock recently? Well, they have a going concern. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So they they released uh, the auditor, you know, included a going concern um, qualification there. So normally you have a, you know, an unqualified auditor opinion, meaning that they don't add any other um, words to the normal language that you see there. But sometimes um, it can be qualified in certain ways. And the, one of them, the most, one of the most serious ones is if the auditors, if the um, audit statements include something saying um, uh, that the that the information is provided as if there's it's on a going concern basis and not on the basis of like a liquidation basis, um, and the reason why they would say that is if there's some serious doubt about whether the company will um, survive on a going concern basis, meaning not having to go into um, bankruptcy type situation in the next year or so. So when they include that, that's very serious. And actually a lot of SPACs have included that, you know, former SPACs recently. But but among most companies, it's very unusual to ever see that um, language used, and they did. So um, that's a case where you had Majestic Wine mm -hmm. was the company. Um, does it tell you in the business description there if it tells you when they changed that and everything? Um, August 2019. Okay. So I, I think it was earlier than that that they actually sold off the business. 2018 looks like the last year that includes revenue from that. Um, and so we were very, uh, I was very interested in that company a few years yeah. back, mm -hmm. I was going to write it out for singular diligence and uh, majestic wine was a brick and mortar, um, sort of wine club thing only in the sense that for licensing purposes in the UK, uh, it's a lot easier to sell like six bottles or more of wine at once. Yeah, it had once been 12, I think, but I think it was down to six, um, rather than selling bottles one at a time. And so. Um, because of that, that so it was just basically just a, a wine retailer. Um, and then it converted into being Naked Wines. Basically, they got the um, founder there, but he left a, a couple of years ago um, to as their CEO. And then, then they merged with Naked Wines, which is an online concept similar to Virgin Wines. And there's some other ones. Um, and they're a wine club thing online. You know, you put a deposit. And then you get like a subscription type uh, basis kind of thing. Um, 
it's very marketing driven in terms of having to, uh, you know, have customer acquisition costs and those sorts of things. It's, um, anyway, I, d- I didn't really care for the former CEO and it was the board that really decided to bring, um, him in and to change directions that way, you know, and I was worried that it could go in any sort of way and that it could, you know, it could turn into a great growth thing. It could turn into a disaster. So you were independent and you were thinking towards that because I've read a bunch of call it message boards or whatever, where people really liked the new CEO. So, I mean, what was something that you disliked about well, the, I, the, uh, that CEO? I read what he said and I researched his past. I was concerned about the direction they were going to take the company. And I was also concerned about the board wanting to do all this. I thought it was kind of strange that they were doing that. Um, and they were chasing this, this kind of total pivot into something else. And, and that it was seemed like it could be reckless. What was it about his past? I mean, was it more so like he had been a quick Edward, flip, stuff like that? Yeah, he was a serial entrepreneur. I didn't think he was going to be a CEO who would last for long. And he didn't. And he didn't. He, he, he left. He started things oh. up and then he left. Yeah, that's his thing, which is fine. But that, it's not really a CEO of a public company thing. Mm-hmm. Because from your perspective, if you're thinking about what the business could look like five to ten years, it's hard to judge that if you have a CEO that's going to come in, dress the company up, and basically leave. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe they thought they were going to be really successful doing it. I don't know. If they were just dressing it up. But uh, do you have a longer chart on that so you can sure. see if it yeah, works? It's for down for people listening. Year to date, seventy six percent. But we can a lot of that's chart. in the last day, though. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you look at the max chart, yeah, it doesn't start that early, but it did go up for a while there. You know, the oh, yeah. multiple certainly expanded and everything. It went to, you know, through the COVID craze. I mean, was this a high of around 12 bucks, basically, mm-hmm. from just under $3. But that's purely a capital allocation thing. And that's an issue I have with the UK sometimes. I think sometimes the board and the CEO are not as aligned as in the US. And it can be, uh, the, the board can sometimes be more active and that can can be a danger. Okay, so what do you mean capital allocation thing? Well, for one, I think the, the yeah, I think the board can be more involved in st- in strategy and long-term strategy and um the CEO can be weaker in in that. This situation became like the typical tech company through call it 2020 to present day, right? It became all about like the, um you know, total addressable market is infinite and the customer acquisition costs and this and that. Mm-hmm. I mean, people were pretty there was a lot of, uh, I don't want to say cult followers, but there was a lot of cheerleaders from the sides for this company. Yeah, and it makes sense because the company completely um, shifted. I mean, it's a vehicle, basically became a vehicle for something completely different from what it originally was. It merged with something and then it actually got rid of the old business. So it completely changed over to something else. So, I mean, obviously people were investing on the basis of what the company was really doing in that capital location. And, and that capital location made sense if that's what you wanted and that's what the market wanted. And it attracted a following that was, in, that was um, in line with what they were doing. So that all makes sense. Um, but it, it wasn't what I was looking for in a stock. Mm-hmm. So, so that's why we didn't do it. Um, so if you were investing in the company and they issued a going concern, what are some things that you would be looking for on your end as an investor? Put yourself in the current investor's seat. Well, unless you know something really, um, unless you know a lot about the company and how it works, that is unique about the situation it's finding itself in, that's a sort of freak uh, reason for it to be in this situation. Normally, you would not want to be in a, in a stock that has a going concern. Um, 
uh, that mentions a con concern issue in the, in the audited um, financials. Because it's a very strong sign of, uh, you know, we talk about Z score, mm -hmm. you know, can, can helping to predict bankruptcy a year, year and a half out, something like that. Um, this sort of thing is is a big leading indicator. Now, it's not much of a leading indicator. It's usually not a very big surprise when it appears there. Um, there are some where it could be a strange reason why it happened. You know, maybe there were things, you know, I, I didn't read all the things during COVID. If some mentioned that, you know, put that language in there. Um, it's possible that there could be something that, um, that I would, um, maybe somehow know a lot more about and you're buying into, but you have to see it as sort of like a warrant at that point that it has a much lower chance of bankruptcy than people might think, but certainly you have to, I would, I would view it more as like a warrant rather than a common stock at that point. Got it. Um, we've talked a lot about um the price of oil recently and mm -hmm. largely because just everything that's going on with inflation and you know buffett we've spoken a lot about buying occidental which he did buy more stock um uh, and i thought this chart was interesting i pulled from the the daily shot and it was talking about the sp 500 energy capex as a percentage of operating cash flow from 1990 to the present mm -hmm. and it's interesting that a lot of companies or companies in this bucket or whatever, they're not taking a lot of their cash flow or free cash flow and using it to, um, or I guess their cash flow to use it to, uh, for CapEx purposes. They yeah. They buy back a lot of their stock. And we've spoken a lot about how, when you read the oxy call or whatever, how it's much more about capital allocation and that's what they're focused on. And the numbers coming out are really reflecting that. And the overall commentary from a lot of oil companies. Yeah, and I think two of the big reasons for that is what happened uh, last time. Um, so the last cycle that they went through. Um, so usually companies, industries, you know, if they're going to make mistakes or whatever, they're going to make them in the opposite direction from whatever went wrong last time. And uh, they obviously overinvested, especially shale things and stuff um, during that period. And uh, so we're going back to the middle of last decade. And uh, the other issue, I think, is how they're valued in the market. I think mm -hmm. that's a major reason for it too. It's what we're talking about with naked wines. You're valued much higher as naked wines, even if you're burning money, than you would be as majestic um, if you were producing free cash flow. And I think energy companies weren't being rewarded for growth this time. They were being rewarded before. I remember back in the early 2010s, and the obsession was always about um, whether your reserves were increasing year over year. Mm -hmm. People didn't want they're always complaining about companies where they said, yeah, but their reserves were down 2% or whatever. They need, you need to increase your reserves each year um, in addition to, so it's not enough to just buy back stock, pay dividend, whatever, and have some decreases over time. You have to more than replace everything. And now it's, the focus isn't on that because obviously growth isn't being valued as much. Um, and things like the dividend, the buybacks, and, and all that is. Yeah, interesting. Uh, so more on... The price of oil. Buffett continues to buy Occidental. He increased his ownership to 16.3%. Is this going to become a subsidiary of Berkshire Hathaway? What's going on here? He bought more stock. I mean, he continues to buy stock. And uh, now he owns close to 20% of the business, which is pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, we talked about this before. Buffett's investment record in commodity stuff is a little mixed. Um, and he seemed to do it at times when he's worried about inflation, which is always a big concern of his. Um, 
but this time I'm not so sure that it's uh, as risky versus his other choices because I think he has fewer choices outside of energy things this time. I think where he's made mistakes in the past is that he could have done more investing in things that were more in his his um, closer circle of competence or whatever. Um, this time, a lot of those things aren't particularly cheap compared to energy things. So like in the, you know, if we go back 30 or 40, uh, 40 or 50 years, um, there were more options for him in other things that he did well in. And it's not that he did particularly badly in the commodity things. It's just that he could have done as well or better by buying even more of his best ideas and mm -hmm. other things. Yeah. Have you looked at any new energy things lately? No. Do you typically want to stay away from energy? Is that just sort of like within your framework or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I don't think that it's something that I understand well. It's a globally traded commodity that we're talking about here when we're talking about oil. And I don't really invest in globally traded commodities, I think. Global markets are very volatile. I mean, it, supply it can come in from any part of the world and mm -hmm. affect it a lot. Yeah. Yeah, you also get all of these like um, just random things that you can't even like predict or probabilistically even, I guess, consider. I mean, maybe you could, but like what happened, which recently brought down the price of natural gas is an onshore um, natural gas facility like blows up and then it's down for a month or whatever it is. And then the price of natural gas uh, declines. And there's all these things that, you in know, I guess. Declines, yeah, 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 in the US. Um, and then so overseas, the price of natural gas uh, shoots up. Right, I mean, natural gas these, is much less of a global commodity. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. So, I mean, how would you factor that into your margin of safety when thinking about, you know, underwriting a company? I mean, it's much tougher, I would say. A lot more variables for things to go wrong. Yeah. I mean, it responds to um, everything around the world. So, mm -hmm. you know. It's Politics a as well. Interest rates. Mm-hmm. So. Inflation, price of, you know, gas, like all these things, just kind of loop all the macro stuff work together. Yeah, so you're not that insulated. We talk a lot about like how much damage can other companies do to you. I mean, you're selling exactly the same product basically that others are, and on much the same terms. So you're you're um, at risk from whoever is the um, cheapest producer that can come on, um, and so you're you have risks from those decisions that they make. I mean, the. There have been things in other kinds of businesses that I've looked at and, and thought about and not investing for much the same reason, like steel and things like that. And it's mostly because of competition. And um, that competition could be even irrational, like, say, from China, steel mills and stuff for a while there, um, even if it seemed like you had a fairly efficient operation, like Munger owned Posco. And that's always something that worried me about Posco, um, hmm. which is a South Korean steel maker. And, um, Does he still own it? I don't know the Daily Journal own some of it or if it sold it completely out it was not a large position so i don't know if you heard about this um but again we talked about this on the podcast inventory issues at um retailers and this just came out uh from cnn yesterday or the day before basically they're weighing just allowing individuals or customers to keep their items and they'll pay them back for it because they really have a inventory issue going on uh, so, that, so so instead of piling return merchandise under this growing inventory heap stores are considering just handing customers their money back and letting them hang on to their stuff that they don't want okay as a way to combat an already excessive uh, inventory issue yeah and this is a big issue um this this topic is a big issue anyway in terms of we've had a lot more online 
And one of the biggest risks to online things, are that one of the worst parts of the economics of online is how high the returns are. So categories where there are large returns is a real problem for online because online returns turn out to be very expensive and they have very high return rates, sometimes incredibly high. Um, and so that's an issue. Um, it, you know, it, we talked about it with what it looked like at Walmart, you know, when I said what Walmart looked like, um, they had an issue, you know, um, so it's something that you have to clear it out fast. It's good if they clear it out fast. I mean, it's, most companies are slow to do that. They're a little worried about doing that, you know, so we'll see. I mean, not like American Eagle. Like, they're used mm -hmm. to clearing that stuff out fast. Gap. A what do you do? Discount it and get it Target and Walmart place. have no experience with that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, they have clearance things and all that. And you can sell it out through other channels, too. I mean, we talked about Ollie's. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's a way of, of getting out of it. I mean, Yeah, you want to talk about that company? Is that a micro cap or small cap? No, it's small cap, maybe. It's a small company, but it's a pretty high valuation. Yeah. There's an Ollie's right around here. I've been to a few Ollie's now. So what do they do? They're a liquidation company, basically. Mm -hmm. So if um, what they do is, um, it's not something that I invest in because it's a retail thing and the price and all that, but it was a, a model that interested me. So basically, you um, uh, you have thing, uh, companies that want to get rid of stuff because they have too much of it. Uh, for a variety of reasons. One, you know, it could be discontinued. So there's a product now it's discontinued. And so once the product's discontinued, there's people aren't going to buy it. There's not support behind it. And so um, you probably want to clear out what inventory you have of it. So, you know, they tried to do a cereal and it failed, you know, um, that sort of thing. Um, you know, some are really bad and they always have these issues. You printed too many books, you know, because it's a very specific thing. It's this exact book that you mm -hmm. printed. So you have to get rid of that stuff. Um, and then they have other things that could be that the company went into bankruptcy. Um, and so it has to move a lot of the product all at once. And so you get a better price for it if they're willing to take all of it and sell it out. Um, and so sometimes it can be at a huge discount. And then they sell that stuff. And it, it's fairly cheap depending on what it is, but it's a variety of, uh, you know, uh, it's a very mixed bag. You can't count on what's there. Um, How is it different from like a TJ Maxx or a Ross? Well, it's not a lot of clothing. Okay. So like I said, books are a much bigger mm -hmm. category. Food is probably a bigger category. It's actually very, very diversified, I would say. I was surprised by how much diversified it was, even though I read the um, investor presentation talking about that. It's it's a very diversified store that way. It even has things like, uh, there wasn't a lot when I looked, but um, it has uh, even like small appliance stuff, like uh, uh, sort of the kind of things that Hamilton Beach brands would sell. You know the ticker? Ollie's? Um, well, it would be, no, I don't know the ticker, but O-L-L-I-E. Is the name and then yeah, Ollie's Bargain Outlet Holdings. So o L L I is okay. the ticker. The three point nine billion dollar company and market capitalization three point seven billion enterprise value. Current EBIT sales two point two times ten year median margins on EBIT eleven point seven. Very predictable gross margins or stable, I should say. Yeah, and they open up new stores all the time. So they also open them up slowly, moving across the country with them closer to each other and stuff. So they're a little more clustered. So there's some parts of the country where you wouldn't see them as much. I don't know if it says how many states they're in. Yeah, so 436 stores in 29 states. And the stores they seem to take over are things that, like, the the landlord um, has empty space because someone, you know, they lost a tenant or something like mm -hmm. that. I saw one that, was a, um, that had been a bad... Um, uh, a very low end, like hard discount um, supermarket type thing, you know, a grocery store 
that obviously moved out and Ollie's moved in. Um, I saw that one. I saw a different location. Uh, same sort of thing. That one was in better shape. Um, they obviously didn't change anything about the first one that I saw. You could tell what it had been before still. Um, Are these huge stores? This looks like a, is this as big as like a Costco? No. So they're not large stores. Uh, the one that I was in, like I said, had been a had been like a uh, size of like an Aldi type thing mm-hmm. um, for one of them, and then the other one was a not quite the same size. So they might be slightly different, but um, a smaller supermarket maybe. So not as the size of like a like a Shoprite or a Kroger or something that are like a particularly large supermarket, but more of a. Um, that advertised supermarket that people be used to in a lot of the country. Do you like businesses like this, like um, like dollar stores, Dollar General, um, you know, this, or TJ Maxx, or Ross? I mean, if you look at the businesses, they all have great returns on capital, high, I mean, decent, stable, predictable margins. The returns for shareholders, if you've been a long-term investor, have all been pretty good. I mean, do you like that Yeah, I, segment I don't know of the market? about retail. I've lo- yeah, I've looked at, uh, you know, Dollar General. Um, for instance, and um, I guess the other one, so dollar, the two public trade ones will be Dollar General, right? And Dollar mm-hmm. Tree. Mm-hmm. Dollar General also owns Family Dollar. Correct, yeah. And Dollar Tree, yeah. So, I mean, I've looked at them and I, I've looked at, you know, their stores and tried to get a feel for it. Um, you know, some of them have less competition. Dollar, you know, so it is different than some of the other ones you're mentioning. I would say that like Ross and TJ Maxx and those are are big and are in a lot of places that are in pretty heavy competition with other things. Dollar General less so. Um, I think that the locations that they're in are are less competitive and it's more similar to uh, the earlier days of Walmart than what Walmart is now. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are some Dollar Generals in in more urban uh, suburban areas, but less of that. Um, they they're yeah, it's close to like when we're talking about tractor supply. Eventually, they grew into a size where they're familiar to people all over the country. Mm-hmm. Um, but initially, they weren't. And so they were pretty strong in the areas that they were in. And what about the question that always comes up with these companies? I mean, how do they compete with Amazon? I mean, is Amazon going to kill their business? I mean, if you look at QuickFS, it looks like uh, like Ollie's has done a, you know, a good job. Uh yeah, I, I know Amazon can't handle what Ollie's is selling. Why is that? The cost of hand the cost of handling any of this stuff in anything but bulk amounts and just putting it there for people to buy is, you know, Amazon has high levels of returns and stuff. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just it's it's not possible. I mean, this is very very cheap stuff, and it's large quantities of very cheap stuff. Um, so this is Amazon's not a good way to like liquidate your inventory. If anything, Amazon is more likely to be a channel through which you supply things like Ollie's than the other way around. Um, I don't think it appeals to the same customers at all. Mm-hmm. I don't think Amazon shoppers are people who are looking for the lowest possible prices, regardless of quality, and who are willing to look around and not find the thing that they want. I think an Amazon shopper wants exactly what they want, and they want it now. Mm-hmm. And they're less worried about price. And So um, just convenience? Yeah, convenience, um, wide selection. Obviously, these sorts of things have very narrow selection, whether you're talking about Dollar General or Ollie's or any of those. Um, so you want wide selection, which you get at Amazon. You want convenience. Mm-hmm. Um, and you want to not have to do things in person. You value your time a lot more than you value your money if you're an Amazon shopper. If you're an Ollie shopper, it's probably the reverse. 
Ollie's has bought back some stock, it looks like. What was that in 2020? Yeah. So like a situation like this, if you're looking at it, would you try to understand more of what their unit economics are and like what their capital allocation internally is going to be? Yeah, I looked at all that stuff, but I mean, retail is so far outside of what I can invest in. I mean, we're talking about energy, globally traded commodity is pretty bad um, in terms of my understanding of it and ability to invest in it. It's close to the worst of anything I could look at. Retail's probably even worse than that or mm -hmm. as bad as that, yeah. I wonder what the base rates are in retail from like an investor standpoint, if they've been successful. I mean, you could look at like the energy industry, the base rates have basically sets a tough industry for shareholders to make money in over time. Do you ever think through that backdrop when you're looking at different companies, whether it's energy or retail or whatever company you're looking at, whatever industry it is in? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that the with retail, for the most part, they have very different business models. So that's what I worry about. So if the business model works, then it can do very well. And I don't think that one retailer is necessarily should be used as a comparable for another retailer the problem that i have is like what if something changes about the um the way that your business model works and the way the world's evolving and the risk that that can pose um so like uh look at how uh bed bath and beyond has done recently mm -hmm. and look at how um so there's your Bed Bath & Beyond, and you can see how poor the results have been for the last five, six, seven years. I mean, it hasn't really grown for eight years or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and deteriorating economics by most measures by a lot. Um, and then you have Best Buy from 10 years ago probably would have been put as exactly the same thing as Bed Bath & Beyond. If not, many people had higher hopes for Bed Bath & Beyond than for Best Buy, and then Best Buy recovered a great deal from there. Um, they had a, you know, a business model that made a lot of sense. And then at a certain time with the way the world was changing, people became very concerned about that. Are they still public? Yeah. Best Buy. Best Buy. Okay. I thought yeah. so. What did they do to like, did they make a huge change in their business model? Because I do remember when they were basically left for dead mm -hmm. by wall street. Yeah. They made some changes. Yeah. Um, but I don't know how big those changes were. I mean, there's a. What was the one that did a, there was a podcast about it. It's not um, how I made this, but it's the same sort of uh, podcast series or something like that, mm -hmm. very similar. Um, that was about the um, turnaround of of, bed, of uh, Best Buy about 10 years ago. Huh. Um, yeah, and so... There's lots of different retailers. I mean, I have I read lots of business history books, so I have read lots of ones about. It. I have um, ups, uh, I have um, uh, Tandy's Money Machine. So that's about um, Radio Shack because Tandy. That's what Tandy, mm -hmm. you know, was. Um, they took the money from uh, that got started in Tandy, the leather business, and they used that um, model to do another hobby which was electronics at the time, which was a small hobby. And that, of course, exploded with huge demand for that. And, you know, Radio Shack became one of the biggest, especially retailer things that there was, and went from that to, you know, nothing. Crazy. You uploaded two um, posts to Focus Compounding. Um, uh, one post on why you're biased against 
stock options. And then another one on Warren Buffett's market value test and how to use it. Yeah, we talked a lot about that on the podcast, the Warren Buffett's market value test. Mm -hmm. And we also did a podcast where you talked about uh, stock options. Um, But for people, if you want to read those, you can go to Focus Compounding. Uh, com. How do you typically come up with uh, posts? Are these all just from people emailing you and you just yeah, say, I'll do questions a, a that I get from it. people. Do yeah. you send the email back to them or you just say, I'm going to make a post uh, out of this? Like, is this basically your email yes. back to them? Normally, it's usually my email back to them. It depends on the person. Sometimes it's a little different, but yeah, uh-huh. basically, it's it, it's my response is their email. And then sometimes, so I respond to way more emails than go up on the website. But if I think that it makes sense as an article, then I'll send it, then I'll put it up as an article. So yeah, it's basically the email is the source of it. How do people ask you a question if they want to shoot you an email? Oh, um, well, people can send emails to Gannon on investing at gmail.com that actually forwards to a different email address i don't actually use that email address but that'll forward to something uh-huh. and um they also can uh for the website it always has a link where they can click it but that's for members of the website mm-hmm. but there's always a link that you can click and uh use it to e- email me a question directly it'll, that'll send it to me and say that's a question in the subject mm-hmm. Got it. And uh, if you want to ask questions for the podcast, you can email them to me at androidfocuscompound.com and just put in the subject line podcast. Uh, so for the first question, before we hop over to questions from Twitter, um, somebody says, hi, OMC, Omicom, is currently trading about PE equals 10 and a half times. What's Jeff's thoughts about Omicom at the current environment and at these prices? Is he still worried about market irrationality regarding ad spending? as discussed on a podcast a few years ago. Thanks, Jim. So I always talk about Omnicom and some other stocks like this, and uh, probably not an exciting stock for people. But I had said before that I thought Omnicom was interesting at $65 or less. It's at $65 now, basically. Mm -hmm. So I think that, yeah, I think it's a good price. Yeah. Now, there are reasons why people, you could check what it's done year to date. There are reasons why people would be concerned. So the big concern that people would have now, investors would have now, is uh, that there's going to be a recession. You know, that's what they're thinking. So uh, that obviously affects advertising companies. They're cyclical and they have downturns in recessions. Um, You know, advertising spending is often cut more than GDP. uh, And then it could grow more than GDP in a uh in the growth in the um, expansion phase but generally it's going to track G- nominal gdp it's just that it won't do it evenly it will it'll drop more in the um uh, recession phase and then it, it would expand more normally so i think that it, it's a good price for it yeah and obviously because it buys back a lot of stock now it, it pays out more dividends now as a percentage of its its um income of its free cash flow and things like that than it used to. So it's increased the dividend faster than it's increased the uh, earnings or the cash flow from operations, free cash flow, things like that. So the effect of your buybacks may be smaller now than it was, say, 10 years ago because the dividend's pretty good. I believe the dividend is in the four, we could check the exact number. I'm going to say it's between four and 5%. It's a good yield that it has right now. Um, It actually, we can just figure it out by looking in quick FS at the dividends per share. Oops. Let's see. Yeah, if you look at dividends per share, they say that they're at 280. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there you go. 
So um, we're talking about a, like I said, a yield that's higher than, uh, actually it's higher than, right, than um, people would expect the uh, Fed funds rate to get up to at the top. So it's certainly higher than anything that you can get on government bonds and it's probably pretty competitive. Yeah, probably pretty competitive with a bunch of other bonds. Yeah. And then you're getting a, a buying back stock over time and then the possibility that you could have uh, an expansion in the multiple. Um, they did well last year uh, in terms of growth because obviously that was um, a good year for nominal GDP, good year for advertising spending. Uh, in terms of timing, though, you know, if we go into a recession, is that bad for ad stocks? It might be, you know. But it it is also a fact that it is more tied. To, it is more important what nominal GDP is. So one thing that I would caution is like if you look at like for instance the seventies to the early eighties on a real basis for the economy and how often it's spent in recession things like that. Let's say seventy two to eighty two. Um, there were several recessions. Uh, plenty of um, weak real numbers. But since there was also a lot of inflation, that's not too bad to be invested in ad agencies versus other stocks during those ten years. So same sort of thing here because they're capital light, right? They're capital light. Um, they're gonna they're gonna use their money to buy back stock. Um, their working capital position, their negative working capital position, is tied to um, ad spending, which is generally tied to nominal GDP. Um, and so, you you know have a pretty good situation that way, as opposed to like when we're talking about those retailers which have a lot of inventory and those. Um, uh, here you're talking about something that doesn't have any of that. So, for instance, it has negative working capital normally. Mm -hmm. uh, we could probably see if we look at the balance sheet. You could see if we look at, um, we have, let's see, um, total liabilities. To, yeah. So, if you look, their current assets, you can see they are very small um, versus what they generate in um in uh cash so like for instance if we just take uh if you take their tangible net worth for instance so we can see that their um their stated shareholders equity is like less than four billion but their goodwill is over uh it's about 10 billion so we obviously have negative tangible equity so they and then on that they generate what do, what would we say like um close to two billion a year in the last 10 years in cash flow margins what's their 10-year yeah, in that neighborhood, one point eight billion, I guess, most recently, two billion. Yeah, in that neighborhood. So you're generating a fairly high amount of uh, free cash flow while using, you know, obviously no equity. Do you think Buffett would ever be interested in buying Omnicom? Would Berkshire be a good home for Omnicom? Berkshire, I don't know that any of them are big enough for Berkshire. That's worth it, right? So Omnicom is one of the bigger ones, and it's now valued in the market less than fifteen billion. Is it really worth Berkshire's time? Like, what's the oxy? Fifty-five billion. Yeah. So you know we're getting to the point where Berkshire owns a, almost as much. You know, mm -hmm. it only has to go a few more percent. It, it, you know, it has the potential to own as much in Occidental as it would by buying an entire um, ad agency, a holding company. And the issue with the ad agency holding companies, of course, is that you have to pay a very high premium, presumably, to do it. Mm -hmm. You want to be able to take it over. So let's say it's $65 a share, but what would you have to offer? Would you have to offer 85, 90, 95? What would you have to offer to be able to take over a company without a bidding war? Berkshire doesn't get involved in those. So what would be something that you could buy the entire holding company and be sure that you would get it? 
you know, it says the PE is 10, right? But mm -hmm. can you buy it at 10? Would they sell it to you at one time sales? Would they sell it to you at 10 times PE? Or are you talking about something where you'd have to pay, you know, 30 to 50% more? You, you know, normally a small premium, 30% or less would be possible to take over a company. This probably traded like this doesn't have a lot of concentrated ownership, but Berkshire only does friendly deals. Um, it's not going to get involved in a bidding war. And if you go to buy something when it's at the lowest price it's been in a while, in terms of valuation and things like that, then it's not as likely that they're going to agree to such a small premium because there are everyone who owns the stock is aware of what's happening that way, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's much easier as a, these are things that are probably more attractive to people listening to this podcast, to uh, portfolio managers of funds and things like that, because it's pretty liquid. It's very liquid mm -hmm. um, and it's large company. So if we look at the, you know, share turnovers over two times, so you can see that it's easy for someone to invest, you know, a fund can invest nearly a billion dollars in this company, do it, you know, reasonably. Whereas you can't really invest 10 billion in it the way that Berkshire needs to, you know, they have to buy the whole company and it, you wouldn't get it at this price, presumably. But yeah, it's something that he's familiar with in the past. Sure. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on the revenue caker over the past 10 years being basically non-existent? It's nothing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's nothing. Um, I mean, some of that is they've disposed of things, obviously. So you can see that their operating profit hasn't, although very low growth in operating profit mm -hmm. has been higher than their growth in, um, uh, revenue because they've actually sold off some things over time. I think they show that. Did they show that in the cash flow statement? They might if they show acquisitions and Oops. to give you an idea of that. Um, yeah, so acquisitions, yeah, you can only, it's not common. You can see, let's see, one year where you can see that it's a negative number, meaning that they disposed of more things than they acquired. But you can see that the acquisitions are not very big. So even though they're acquiring things, is netted out against the fact that they've disposed mm -hmm. of some things at the same time. Um, so that's why that number is so small. And it's actually very small. These companies used to buy a lot of stuff. And now on average, they haven't bought that much in the last 10 years. Why do you think they started paying out more in dividends as opposed to buying back more stock? I think revenue growth was so slow. Profit growth was so slow. They just didn't slow down their dividend as much. If we go to key ratios or what is it? We could probably do key ratios. Um, we can see. So they went in terms of um, if we look at the dividend. Right, so the payout ratio. Mm -hmm. So the payout ratio has crept up a little bit, and it's really only crept up in the last. Yeah, it's barely crept up. I mean, they recovered a lot of profit, I guess, in the last year. So it's mainly they had it high during COVID. Um, when I was looking at the stock, though, it was closer to a third. You know, when I owned the stock, then fifty percent, and now it's about fifty percent. But that still means that they can buy back about fifty percent of their earnings. So if we have a ten PE, they can, in theory, buy back about five percent of the company you get a yield of 4 to 5%, and then they buy back 4 to 5%. There's some offset to that because there's stock compensation. Uh, if we look at the cash flow statement, we can see there's acquisitions and there's stock compensation. And they're meaningful numbers, but they're not large. Um, so acquisitions were, you know, 160 on the trailing 12 months, but they averaged 40 million or something like that last few years. And the stock compensation only averaged 80 million, I guess. So even together, that's it's less than 10% of cash flow from operations probably. So it's not like some tech company that way, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. the actual stock they've been buying back has We're not been looking at Twitter. Right. So the worst they did, well, I think we should exclude 
COVID because they basically stopped buying back the stock because of COVID. Right. So if you look, if we exclude COVID, what's the lowest amount of stock they bought back in a single year in dollar terms? The lowest would be, looks like 500. Oh, we got COVID. 575 million, 568 million. Okay. So yeah. over 500 million. And then if we look at the stock today and the market cap, 13 billion. Right. So we can see that they even, even if they, um, you know, uh, in it for a slow year for them buying back, they buy back 3% of the company, right? A slow year. And for a, a good year in terms of buying back a lot of stock, it would be maybe 6% they could buy back at today's prices, 3 to 6%. Then you're getting 4 or 5% for 4.5% per, per year. Yeah. If you look at the income statement, you can see that because uh, it'll show the uh, shares diluted, the mm-hmm. diluted shares at the bottom there. They they took it down from 270, right? Yep. 216. And that's also with COVID stopping them for a year, basically. And it becomes much more attractive now because they're going to use the same amount. I mean, here's what's going to happen with this company. They have the dividend that they're going to pay you, and then they're going to use the rest of my back stock. There's really nothing else that they're going to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's what it is. It's their payout ratio, you know, how they do it. It's not we're going to target buying back a certain amount of stock uh, percentage of the company. As if the stock is cost two-thirds what it did before, right, if it's trading at 65 instead of like 100, then they're going to buy back one and a half times more as a percent of the company. So they're going to buy back closer to 5% than 3% if it's at 10 times P instead of 15. So that's why it's more attractive as it's cheaper, a stock like this. Sure, yeah. Right? The reverse is true for companies that buy back a lot of stock that people like, but then they get really expensive. And they say, oh, isn't it great that they buy back all the stock over time? True, but if it's the highest multiple that's been at, then it's going to have the least effect on it, you know? Why does it seem like this company always trades at or less, more so less than not, uh, a market multiple? I well, mean, if you look at it, is it really like a growth thing? I mean, if you look at, well, they have great capital allocations, they're very predictable, they buy back stock, they pay dividends, a very predictable, high-quality company. Is it really purely like a growth thing? Poor revenue growth is a huge factor in it. Poor growth in profits, too. So no matter how high returns on equity are and all that, if they aren't reinvesting that doesn't really matter mm-hmm. um obviously a major factor is if you buy back a lot of stock and your multiple doesn't expand that makes it look like you're not doing that well um so for instance if we look at uh if we look at the 10-year t- numbers here um we have Revenue growth is nothing. EPS growth, which is a lot of buybacks, is 7% a year. Um, 7% a year plus dividends is actually not bad. At a 4.5% or whatever it is now. Right, but I mean the last 10 years is actually not bad. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's bad versus the stock market because the stock market's multiple went up a lot. This company's multiple actually contracted a little bit. but in terms of, I mean, what did the stock market, the EPS of the S&P 500 do? I mean, if, if we take the multiple out of it and say, what did your EPS do for an index? And what did we use your dividend yield? It, it's not doing better mm-hmm. um, than this stock. So it's very comparable. So uh, obviously, the over the last 100 years or something, the, the indexes like the Dow and, and those things um, have not compounded EPS is 100% a year, nor have they generally paid dividend yields over 4%. Now, that doesn't mean it's an attractive stock because you have the issue 
that it could have durability risk and stuff. It's one stock. Mm-hmm. It's not an index. So that comparison is not completely fair that way. You're taking a lot more risk. They obviously, um, it's not as popular a stock because there are other things in advertising that grew much faster. And that pulls away a lot of interest in investing in those kinds of things. People would rather invest in the things that are growing a lot faster. I mentioned you now, you know, the, the emails mentioned now, but I'm saying that it's a good uh, price now because as you can see, the 10 year median free cash flow margin is about 11%. Mm-hmm. You get a sales is one, so it's about 11%. And yep. then about 100%, they actually do the investor presentation things where they show you that actually on an earnings basis, they pay out in dividends and buybacks more than 100%. They try to do more than 100%. Now, the reason why that's happening is honestly, that's kind of misleading. What they're really targeting is free cash flow. So what they're allocating is free cash flow. The only reason why their buybacks and dividends are exceeding reported earnings are to the extent that free cash flow exceeds reported earnings. So if you look at free cash flow, that's more accurate. What they're really doing is they're taking all of free cash flow and doing it back to you. If we just said 50-50 is the split normally, we don't know exactly what it'll be, but say that, then you're you're getting about 5% in dividends, 5% in buybacks at today's price. And presumably it grows. We don't know if it will or not. Now, next year, this year, it may not grow. If there's a recession, mm-hmm. it may not grow. Yeah, but those are all. short-term macro Headwinds, right? Right. But there is a huge factor of inflation. It's much more attractive if there's high inflation. Yeah, sure. Yeah, a lot more attractive, especially relative to other companies. It becomes much, much more attractive. You could see that in how well they did last year versus other companies. This is a company that generally had very, very weak revenue growth versus other companies, especially other companies in advertising, and then had much better growth um, that surprised people. But that's not that surprising because that's actually not a terribly impressive number for 2021 versus GDP in 2021. It's actually a bit slower, right? Yeah. Haven't you said that you think Omicom is always a, could always be an interesting buy point if it's at less than one time sales? Mm-hmm. I think it's probably worth one and a half time sales, you know, just in terms of in t- normal interest rates. Like for instance, let's say th- this one happened. I mean, I've, there's never been a big one that they've done this with, but uh, private equity or something like that, you would think, anyone would think a buyer like Berkshire, whoever, that if you're just harvesting the cash flows, um one and a half times makes sense Mm -hmm. right if the free cash flow yield is over 11 percent or something like that those kinds of numbers then obviously since you can take all of it in free cash um you can pay a multiple of 15 times no problem um so one and a half times is more like what the value would probably be so two-thirds is where you'd want to buy a stock you probably don't want to pay more than two-thirds of what it's worth so one time sales yeah that makes a lot of Mm -hmm. sense um and it looks fair enough priced on a lot of other measures right yeah absolutely yeah absolutely good explanation for omnicom we haven't talked about that stock in a while uh another email that we got was about ebay he said i would love a thread or jeff's take on value and cannibal like ebay do i add back buybacks to free cash flow and try to get to an owner's earnings like number and use that to calculate free cash flow yield do i increase the growth rate proportional to the rate of buybacks well, we just talked about Omnicom, so that's a good example. You saw how I broke it down there. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, what I said is that they're going to spend that amount, and that's a question of how much, uh, how effective that is in getting you value. So it's going to get you a lot more value if the stock is cheaper. Now, the way I look at it is I look at the actual business of Omnicom and say that it's barely growing. In fact, in like real terms, it's not been growing at all for, for 10 years. So I just say, okay, it's throwing off cash, and that cash is either dividends or share buybacks. One thing that's 
easy to overlook with Omnicom, and I didn't mention. If you look at dividend per share growth, it's actually quite strong. And a major factor in that, which gets overlooked, is buybacks. What's the easiest way imaginable to increase your dividend growth rate year after year for a long time? Uh, the easiest way is to pay a reasonable dividend while buyback stock. Stock buybacks make dividend growth very, very easy to achieve. Why? Because if you look at the cash flow statement, as we can do, Omnicom hasn't actually increased the dividends used for cash, uh, actual cash payments of dividends. So you can see that down there at the bottom. They've only increased them from 400 million at the beginning. Is that 400 million at the mm -hmm. very beginning yep. of the yeah, period to 600 million, um, which is only an increase of 1.5 times. Now let's look. So let's say, keep that in mind, 1.5 is how much they increased it. Mm -hmm. If we then look at the overview, Oops. We can see that dividends per share actually went from 120 to 280, which is uh, well over uh, uh, well over 100 percent, um, far over 100 percent. Um, we're talking there about you know what is that 130 percent increase. So there's a 50 percent increase in actual dividend payments, but a 130 percent increase in dividends per share paid out. Why did that happen? Fewer shares. It's the easiest way to accomplish it. So a very easy thing to do if you want to have a dividend growth stock over time is to have a, re, uh, a reasonable dividend payout combined with a share buyback. You know, if you want your dividend aristocrat type things, that's how you accomplish it. That's the mm -hmm. easiest way to accomplish it. There are other companies that don't do that and it can people just look at the record of the dividend growth. Sure. Yeah. You know, so like I was mentioning, there's some UK companies that wasn't that crazy about. There was one called First Group. This is going back nearly, I don't know, this is eight years or something like that. Um, they had a policy of increasing their dividend all the time. Their earnings weren't really going up. They weren't buying back stock. In fact, they issued some stock over time. So the actual um, drag on the company caused by the dividend payouts in cash terms became more and more of a problem. And instead of having a modest dividend payout, 50% or less, combined with buybacks, which makes it a lot easier to constantly increase. They targeted a pretty aggressive level of dividend increases all the time. If you're just looking at dividends and saying, what's my dividend growth thing, looking at the dividend aristocrat type thing, it would look awfully similar at Omnicom and at first group, but actually it's much easier for Omnicom to maintain it over time than a company like that. Um, and the same sort of thing is true for any of these earnings things or whatever. Obviously the constant buybacks are, are helpful in doing that. Any uh, thoughts towards eBay? Well, we can look at their share count and things like that. Diluted shares outstanding have gone from uh, one was this billion, mm -hmm. one billion three hundred thirteen million to six hundred sixty three million right, today. So cut completely in half. Yeah, mm -hmm. percent reduction. So, do you want to look at the cash flow statement or the overview? Sure, cash flow statement is fine. Cash flow. So you've seen big increases in the amount of share buybacks. Yep. Mm -hmm. Very big. And that's not really, what, what's interesting about that is that's not really reflected in items like cash flow that they have there. Yeah, I was going to say they're paying out way more than their cash flow from operations. Yeah. Or they're buying back way more than their cash flow from operations. Right, which wasn't true earlier on in the period. No. It's only been true in the last few years. So... Um, how are they achieving that if we look at the balance sheet? I was going to say, is this like a public LBO going on here? Debt's gone. Long-term debt's gone from $1.5 to $7.7 .7 in 2021. 
But during the period where they increased the buybacks by a lot, there was no change in total liabilities. The balance sheet's the same size that it was four years ago. So I'm not sure what that means. Yeah. I, I don't know the details then, unless they disposed of something and used the proceeds to buy stuff back or something like that. If, see, if the, the company's the same size that it was in terms of balance sheet and stuff, exactly the same size that it was a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they've had cash come in 2021, $4 billion, and then 2021, 2020 was $4 billion, and 2021, $7.4 billion. Yeah, so I have to know the details on what's happening there. Mm-hmm. But it's not an operating thing that costs that. But anyways, his question was, um, would you add buybacks to free cash flow and try to get to an owner's earnings and use that to calculate a free cash flow yield? Or do you just basically break it down where you say you think the shares are going to dilute by X percent per year? So you add that to your return. How do you think about it? Well, I I would value, you don't want to double count. So just like I was saying with Omnicom, you want to, if you can, figure out how they're going to use free cash flow. So in the sense, uh, so like Omnicom, for instance, I'm just looking at it and saying, okay, you're getting about a 10%, 11%, whatever yield. And that yield is then paid to you in some form. Mm -hmm. The form is uh, your shares are a larger part of the company over time. So that's sort of like getting a payment in kind. It's as if they gave you more shares. That's not what they did. They took away shares from other people, but it's the same effect. And and, uh, dividends. So it would be exactly as if you bought a security that gives you half of the payment. It's like you bought a security that yields 11% in which 5.5% is paid to you in dividends and 5.5% is paid to you in uh, additional more of the same security. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like that. Uh, same sort of thing here where I would look and say, okay, what is the yield that I'm getting, right? So for instance, here, the median free cash flow yield over time had been 24%. The EV to sales is two and a half times. So presumably that's a 10% yield. We don't know exactly with this year if it will be similar to that long period that it has. I don't know how stable all those numbers have been. I think it's been fairly stable usually, although I don't know specifically about free cash flow. Um, free cash flow here is very, very high versus EBIT, which is something to keep an eye on what that's all about. Uh, it would be very unusual to be able to convert 25.3% EBIT into 24.3% free cash flow. If you have significant negative working capital, that might be possible. But since EBIT isn't growing very much, it seems like something else is happening there that's increasing free cash flow. Um, and it could be some way in free where how free cash flow is calculated, which might include some one-off type things. So maybe better to use some other measure. But anyway, it's trading at, let's say, 10 times uh, pre-tax income. Um, so presumably you have to tax that. And then you would get a yield from that. And that's the yield that you would expect to use. Um, and you would use that in terms of the like the EPS. Um, with some companies, like Stella Jones or like Omnicom, what you can do is take that buyback and basically say, what if that was growth instead? I don't think I think you want to be careful about that because you want to think about the business and the competition and all of that as a business first. Always do that. You don't want something that's shrinking by four percent a year, but it's buying back six percent a year in stock. So actually, it's growing. You know, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. um, th- there's that the economics of that probably won't work over time. But you know, when we're looking at Omnicom, yes, their revenue growth was zero, but there was no contraction in the margin. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're worried about. Um, I mean, I think Google probably grew a lot faster and probably ha- did have some contraction in its margins. Um, so the, that's what the underlying health of the business. So you have to be sure about the underlying health of eBay. But if you are sure about that, then you would just you could say, what if this grew by a, a, this percentage using the buybacks? 
And that's kind of my point with Omnicom in terms of what the valuation is and whether it's it's fair. In a sense, do you think if that company had the last 10 years grown EPS at 7% a year and paid a large dividend while revenue was growing and everything? So let's say it was diluting shares by 1% a year. Revenue was growing by 8% a year. EPS by, you know, reported earnings by 8% a year, but EPS by 7 it's diluting a little, mm-hmm. um, like a normal company would. Normal company would dilute one percent or maybe two. Um, so if it was growing in that range, and so it's showing revenue growth of seven to nine percent a year, profit growth in that category, dividend. You know, if you did all that, what you have there is basically actually a very strong performing food company or something like that. I mean, most of them don't even grow that much. So a company like that is valued at a much higher multiple than Omnicom getting the same growth in terms of your returns, but achieving it through financial engineering might be valued less by the market. And so you might be better able to buy growth that comes in the form of buybacks than it does in the form of actual revenue growth because the market might not be valuing the two the same way. Mm-hmm. If Omnicom was growing in the mid, mid to high single digits on all levels, top line, uh, operating profit, all of that, would it really be trading at 10 times PE? Probably not, no. Right. So if that's the case, then maybe the market is undervaluing that. But it's only undervaluing it that if you have extreme durability, extreme stability. So far, Omnicom and eBay both have demonstrated that. They have a very long history of their markets not really growing much at all, them not growing at all, them probably losing market share overall, and yet being able to maintain similar profitability. So what I would do is I would use the amount that I expect to be paid from that. So let's go to eBay and look at what we expect the um so for instance operating profit this is a little tough because operating profit has varied quite a bit in the last few years i'm not sure exactly what number we should use it's not totally stable um we've had a range of like 1.7 billion to three i mean we can use let's say we use two and a half billion or something Mm -hmm. like that uh, we'll use that number because it's convenient. The market cap and EV are both around 25 billion, so that's 10. percent It's a really convenient yeah. number to use. So if we use 10, percent the question would be how much is used in buybacks and how much in dividends. There's an issue here. You'll notice they started paying a dividend and they've increased in the last few years. That's a warning sign that more of your payments might come in the form of dividends and less in the form of buybacks in the future. In fact, that's usually what happens in cases like this. Earnings are barely growing at all, but the dividends growing 10 percent or more a year. So when a company first starts a dividend, that's a strong free cash generator like this. Usually that dividend increases a lot over time. So it'd be interesting to look at investor presentations and stuff about management's ideas about what's going to happen with that dividend. You're probably going to get more dividend than you expect and less buyback than you expect over the next 10 years or something. Um, if we look at key ratios or, yeah, we could do key ratios. What are we at in terms of the payout ratio now? 3.5%. Uh, yeah, but that's on a strange, uh, EPS and number. then 8.1%. Yeah. Um, so it's a very low number. So overwhelmingly you're getting in the form of buybacks right now. Uh, the problem is how much those buybacks will be and how much they'll continue. Um, in theory, you could get numbers as high as 10%, I guess. I mean, if we look, certainly the actual buybacks that they did are larger than 10% of the market cap right now. So you could look at it as a company that grows, you know, so one way of thinking about it is what if it was a company, let's take 10%, I think it's aggressive, Mm -hmm. but let's take it. What if it's a company that was growing EPS by 10% a year, 
put aside the issue of how they're doing it, buybacks, regular growth, what should it be valued at, you know? That's an interesting question. In today's market, something a company like that would probably be valued at 20, over 20 times PE, you know? Um, and uh, we could look at what eBay's valued at. Um, it's actually, we know, it's valued at about 10 times pre-tax. So maybe 13 times, you know, not even, but maybe like 13 times PE or something, normal PE is what it looks like. So two thirds or something of what a company that was actually growing that fast would be valued at. So it looks cheaper. But that's because of the fact that it's doing those buybacks. I mean, the way to think about it is you don't want to double count. This is something that worries me. Whenever people talk to me about this, it, uh, I do feel like they're double counting stuff. And I, I'm worried about that. Um, it always seems that way when they talk to me about how they look at this. Double counting how? Like from like a free cash flow plus growth or when they're right. thinking about like what they're doing with it? Yes. Okay, so, so EPS is up, but EPS at eBay or at Omnicom or whatever is up because they are buying back stock. They are buying back stock by using the free cash flow, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So let's take free cash flow per share, for instance. If free cash flow per share is X and it's growing by 10% a year, yeah. you're thinking, here's my free cash flow and I'm growing by 10% a year. That's not what's happening. A, your free cash flow is a figure before buybacks. Yeah. The buyback, the, the free cash flow growth is being driven by the buyback. So you can only count it once, right? Um, this is very different from looking at a company that say, the, the way of thinking about it is, let's take Omnicom again. A very easy way of looking at it with Omnicom, and this is like the way that an academic would look at it, because this is, Omnicom is the purest form of this, which is a dividend discount model, right? It is a yield, we said, of what, 4.3? What do we say? Yeah, 4.3%. Yeah. So you can take that, that 4.4%, and you can compare it to bonds, right? The attraction is the 4.4% will grow faster because bonds won't grow at all. Um, and that, that will make it more attractive than similarly uh, similar yields that you could get. So you're just valuing the dividend stream, but with the growth that's driven by the buybacks. Right. Mm -hmm. That's one way of looking at it. That's a good way of looking at it because what you'll actually get in cash is the dividends over time, but the dividends will grow because of the buybacks. Now, I think there's also, as an investor, realistically in this, something else that's attractive, which is the major possibility for capital appreciation. Now, what can, what can happen is that because it's very different than other kinds of um, securities, as the price in the market goes down, you will actually get a better growth rate in the, the coupon that you're getting because of that. So as the buybacks are used to buy back the stock, because the payout ratio is fairly stable, mm -hmm. what's happening is that's driving up the dividend growth, right? And so the dividend growth that you're seeing there uh, will be higher due to the buybacks than it otherwise would be. And that's going to give you a possibility to make more that way, but it's also going to give you a possibility to make more if there's a change in the valuation in terms of the PE. And that's actually pretty realistic because let's think about it. Let's say theoretically for like Omnicom, uh, people expect a recession. Uh, okay, there's a recession. Uh, you come out of the recession, their numbers get back up to where they are now. Okay, so they got the, the dividends actually probably grown through this period because they wouldn't cut it and they would grow it a little bit, um, but maybe grow a little bit slower. Maybe the PE was down. Let's just say the PE is down and the dividend grows about the same through the recession. Um, as it comes out the other side, if your yield is at that point 5% or whatever because your dividend kept growing, um, if interest rates come down at some point, 
so that corporate bonds and things like that are yielding well under that number, you're going to get people buying a stock because it yields that much, right? Mm -hmm. the, what the industry environment is. So it's very possible that the PE multiple will expand simply because the, the price to dividend is going to expand, you know? And I think the same thing when we're talking about eBay. The possibility is you get expansion from that on the the E, the P, you know, on the multiple that's applied to the E because you have those buybacks. But that, so I think it's okay to think in those terms. And we often talk about that. I often say something like PE or whatever. But I want to caution on that point that, say, Omnicom, you know, the, the E, we know what's happening with it. It's buybacks and dividends. That's all the earnings are being used and turned into those things. Um, so we do want to be cautious in that the growth that you're seeing is completely paid for by the other part of the free cash flow that doesn't go as dividends. So you don't want to be like, I get a free cash flow yield of 11% uh, or whatever, and I get growth. No, you're getting an 11% free cash flow yield if you're thinking of it as no growth, just yield no growth. Or the other way of thinking about it is you're getting a 4.4% dividend yield that grows, right? Mm -hmm. I'm very worried when I talk to people about the, the because I said free cash flow plus growth in talking about valuing a lot of different companies. But what I meant by that is the growth is not driven by the financial engineering. And if it's driven by the financial engineering, then obviously that's the reason for that growth happening. And that's why you've asked about what kind of growth do I mean? I mean the growth in the business. So you are you saying you wouldn't think about it almost like a bond that's paying you an 11% coupon? No, it is a, it, um, well, that's complicated. It, I think it is actually more valuable than a bond that's paying 11% coupon. Yeah, we're not taking into account like any further mul multiple expansion or anything like that. I'm just saying like, if you're looking at it today as an investor to buy it, would you be thinking, okay, you're getting 11% and that form will come to you either from dividends or buyback? Maybe you get some growth, but it doesn't look like you get too much growth. Like on like Yeah, a lot line. of people talk about it that way. So I think that's a way of looking at it, sure. I think it's that, that is a way of looking at it, yeah. But I think most people are not really eliminating from the growth numbers uh, what we're talking about here. So for instance, EPS growth was 7% a year, but revenue growth was zero. So how much of EPS growth was really driven by free cash flow mm -hmm. uh, being reinvested in terms of buybacks? A significant amount of it. We could yeah. do the math, but it's between a third and, and a half of it. Um, so the, there's a very small number, 3 to 4% at most, um, driven by other factors. And you can see that by doing math on like what the operating profit is. And actually, there's also a tax thing in there too. So, But if we do the operating profit, we can tell that it's grown by very, very little. Uh, the operating profit is grown by about 20% over 10 years. So compounded is less than 2% a year. So that's pr probably the most accurate number that the actual earning power of the business at Omnicom has grown by about 2% a year over 10 years. To be fair, one, cyclically, that's a growth period for the industry. Um, you know, there wasn't a recession in there, excluding the COVID thing. Um, but it was a very weak period for nominal GDP growth. So that's not as bad as it sounds. Uh, it's not great, but it's actually not a, a huge divergence from nominal GDP. It, it is a major divergence, but it's not like it was growing. I mean, as you can see, they grew actually, you know, there hasn't been a huge change in the trajectory of what it's grown versus nominal GDP. If you look at the most recent years versus the early years, 
the years where they didn't grow or something were often years that had very weak nominal GDP growth. Uh, you have to remember also this company's in Europe. Uh, that's the other major part of its um, th- uh, its business other than the U.S. And that at times has been even weaker in terms of nominal GDP. So, but I, I would say that it's about no growth. I do worry about the way that people calculate this because you're saying, you know, look at it as like it's an 11% um, bond or something, you know, the free cash flow yield. I agree with that. And I think that's a good way of looking at it. But you have to look at then what it does with that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that a company that generates um, free cash flow that of a meaningful amount uh, in terms of how good the yield is, and then also grows, is going to usually be worth much more than one that does only one or the other. Uh, I think that people would tend to overvalue something in which it's all coming from free cash flow like we're seeing here. They're not right now in terms of the PE, but they would tend to value this versus... Uh, they can tend to think that this is much cheaper versus like over-the-counter markets than it really is, right? Because over-the-counter markets has no growth at all coming... They do technically buy back stock, but it's not effective. Um, so their growth is coming purely from uh, capital-like growth in an actual business. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on top of that, you have the free cash flow uh, yield that you have. So I just think that it's easy to underestimate that. M- most people that I talk to clearly do not separate out how much of the growth is coming from other factors uh, that are through the free cash flow thing so they're not looking at the fact that like how much eps growth is coming from buying back stock yeah and they're also using free cash flow numbers as we are here but we did go through omnicom to make sure that it's not a major factor they're also using free cash flow that doesn't take into account stock compensation stuff they're not actually saying like true free cash flow would have to be free cash flow for instance this free cash flow number um is not taking into account that they're buying some they're doing some acquisitions we showed those acquisitions are not very big at omnicom it's not taking into account stock based compensation. We showed that those numbers are not huge at Omnicom. However, at some companies, they are pretty big. Um, and you have to take that into account. Uh, and free cash flow doesn't do that. So, it really breaking down to how do I get paid? What am I actually, what is the free cash flow turning into? That's all what I'm always looking yeah. at. As an owner. So, you're looking at how are you going to get that 11% yield? In what form? Yeah. For instance, buybacks are much more valuable than dividends at Omnicom. Not necessarily at many companies. At many companies, they're not. But at Omnicom, it would be much more valuable right now to get them in the form of buybacks instead of dividends. Because the stock is cheap? Mm, Yeah. So the stock is cheap enough that the buyback would make sense. Uh, So, for instance, if you look at it and you buy back the stock and let's say, so the EV to free cash flow says it's 12 and a half times PE says 10. So let's say eight to 10, you know, 12, 12 and a half is basically eight. And 10 is basically 10% uh, for yield. Yeah. Um, th- if we're at an eight to 10% return on terms of the buyback, uh, then I'm getting, if you think about it, am I going to get eight to 10% of the market? Uh, I'm skeptical of that. And am I going to be able to defer tax payment with a buyback? Yeah, I don't have to pay taxes on it right now. Whereas if you pay me the dividend, I have to pay taxes on them by the market. So obviously it's more attractive. Um, other things equal. Would you underwrite your return to like a multiple of like a market multiple 15 as well? So you get a few extra percent per year from that, potentially over like a 10-year time frame? 
Yeah, you might get that. If we look at the key ratios, right, we can look at where it's traded in terms of the last 10 years, and people may be disappointed by how rarely it's traded at PE multiples. Do you have that at the bottom of the page? Yeah. How rarely the PE multiple has been that high. I mean, it was in that neighborhood at times, right? Mm-hmm. So it was 13 to 19? Yep. Yeah. So it's 13 to 19 in the majority of those years, 80% of the years or something like that. Um, even these last 10 years, which probably wasn't a terribly highly valued stock. So it's a reasonable chance that you could have a multiple like that again in the future, obviously. So, yeah, the, I do think that that's true. And I think that that's an attractive part of a company that buys back its stock if you buy it at a cheap price. Yeah, sure. Um, because as I've always said about this, look, you always prefer buy, you should always prefer buybacks to dividends in a stock that you own. Because if you're buying it now, let's say. Because it, otherwise, why, if I preferred a dividend, why wouldn't I sell the stock, right? If I said, okay, the, the buybacks are at too expensive a price, okay, then you sell the stock. If this goes to 20 times P and you say 20 times is too much, right? Because at 20 times, it would be 5 to 6% free cash flow yield, you know, 5%, let's say. Um, and so that would mean that I'm getting a, only like a 5% return or something that's too low. So I don't want it to, to um, own it at 20 times. Okay, but then you have a large capital gain if that happens. If it drops to five times, it buys back even more stock. So it, it makes it much more attractive. Uh, so I would not just look at the free cash flow yield. I would look at it, but I would value it differently based on the the how it's being used. And I think that buybacks have s significantly different value to me than other ways of uh, what that free cash flow could be used for. Because what the free cash flow is saying is that the way we calculate it normally, if the company acquires something or it buys back, does not make a difference in our calculation. People say, oh, it trades at 11 times uh, free cash flow or whatever. Uh, then if they go out and they buy something, that still counts as free cash flow. Mm -hmm. Right, the acquisition is funded from free cash flow, but it, free cash flow counts it before acquisitions. Uh, if it pays me a dividend, it's kind of that way. If it buys back stock, clearly, if Omnicom drops another fifty percent from here, so the PE is five, buying back a stock is much better investment than it could possibly get in an acquisition. No one would sell out to them at a price that'd be anything like that. It wouldn't be that easy to buy something at one-time sales, right? Mm -hmm. So imagine trying to buy something at half of sales. You know, so it's a major, major factor. And and so free cash flow yield is really important, but I do want people to think about not double counting it and what way I want to count it. And the way I need to count it is what form it takes. So, because we've talked about virtual motors before, mm -hmm. um, they could do a lot of different things, but it's, a, it, it, it's what we expect them to do with the free cash flow that matters. And the more free cash flow that they generate, the more important it is of how they use it. And so I value it differently based on how I expect a company to use it. So hypothetical then, Omnicom, let's say they used, I mean, you said they use more than 100%, but let's say they use 100% of their free mm -hmm. cash flow to buy back a stock. How would you right. think about valuing that? I value it very, very highly. Yeah, very highly. So you wouldn't be thinking of it, okay, let's say other things equal, 10% yield. You wouldn't be thinking, oh, this is a 10% yield. You'd be thinking. Well, it is a 10% yield, but the return that they're getting is tremendous. Mm -hmm. Because at that level, you know, whatever I think I'm getting in the stock in terms of my return, they're investing all of that in the stock. 
while deferring the taxes that you'd have to pay on it, mm -hmm. um, which is much more attractive than other ways, other kinds of things that you could invest in, um, in terms of what the returns they could get, because it's as if they had an internal uh, inve investment that they could make in their business mm -hmm. that has an after-tax return that's well over you know 11% or something, and probably a lot higher than that because of the chance of multiple expansion, like we talked about. So you know, imagine if a company had a way higher than 10, maybe a lot more like 15% um, after-tax uh, return pro a project that would return that. You could say, well, those aren't that hard to find. No, I mean, I'm sure the company could find things to do. Lots of companies can find things like that to do. How many companies can put 10% of their market cap into that? Mm -hmm. That's the issue. Like you could look and say, well, I'm sure Apple can find some amazing investment opportunity that it can do. Okay, but that investment opportunity has to be in the tens of billions to move the needle in the same way that we're talking about. Buying back your stock, we just proved with the turnover and stuff, is fairly easy. You know, it turns over a significant amount, right? What do we say? Over 20... 200%. Yeah. So, you know, 27, let's say, or whatever, billion dollars a year of this trades. So if their cash flow from operations is 2 billion, they can they could you know theoretically within limits of the rules and stuff buy back something like that certainly you can do it with tender offers and stuff mm -hmm. yeah i just like to play devil's avocado on the podcast but i mean you sometimes you come across other companies where they pay out they, or they use all their free cash flow basically to buy back their stock and the multiples they trade at are always pretty high especially if it's like a capital light business it's like bear sign that company does that and it trades at a very high uh multiple as well this is also very mode you know, protected and predictable and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's also another factor, which is that there is some effect of the buyback on the price of the stock, uh, technical effect, you know, in, in terms of the fact that it, as some number of people want to exit your stock all the time, as you're in the market buying back the stock, that's a meaningful effect on the stock's price. So it becomes harder for the stock to decline. Mm -hmm. So does that change how you think about Omicron because you have this... Um, thesis or ethos that it would be great for them to put more money in buying back their stock. Uh, does it change things, the fact that they've increased their dividends, or is that more of just a short-term thing? Um, no, I mean, when I... Like, why don't they buy back more stock, especially when it's... They buy back a ton, and I think it was just that they raised the dividend more over time. I don't think that... I, it was, if we look, we can see they increased the dividend rapidly shortly after I bought the stock and a, a few years after I bought the stock. So um, you can see the dividend growth is like 20% a year there. So that's when it was starting up. After we hit 2015, it grows at a much lower rate, like 5% a year. I think the major factor there is that they've been growing the dividend about 5% a year, probably at a number they thought was reasonable, but the business hasn't grown that fast. So they haven't slowed the growth in the dividend to match the business growth. So that gave you a fairly... You know, it didn't slow the payout ratio thing. I think they got to the payout ratio they wanted, though, by about 2015, which is probably about half, is my guess, but I don't know that. So in the early, early days of after I bought the stock, the payout ratio was quite low. Um, and there's different reasons for why that might be. They were a faster-growing company at the time. They had been a hotter stock not long before. Um, the, you know, growth was more popular, but, you know, um, back then. So I think that they were just matured and they moved to a shifting into paying out more in dividend. But compared to most companies, they pay out way less in a dividend and way more in buybacks than you would with this kind of growth rate. Most companies with a growth rate of nothing don't buy back all their stock, buy back half of their stock and use the dividend for only half. I mean, you can see why, because there is an issue here, uh, which is we said that they're, Yield is what, 4.4%? Mm -hmm. Okay. 
let's think realistically about this. Let's shift their capital allocation policy. You know, a lot of things, economic things and stuff would say capital allocation doesn't matter that way, just like your capital structure doesn't matter. But this doesn't really make sense because if we shift their capital allocation, do we think the stock will be trading in an eight to nine percent dividend yield? I'm saying you shift it to okay. So to like, let's say you had a hundred percent dividend. Yeah, probably not. No, it won't. Yeah. So in a sense, you can put a floor on the stock by paying out a higher dividend yield. And by the way, by doing that, actually creating less value over time, in my view. So you can increase the price of your stock, um, and you can decrease the long-term return expectations in the stock. Why does that happen? You know, um, it, it probably happens because there's some sort of time preference thing that people have that way that they that the certainty of a high enough yield is something that they're attracted to. It may also happen to a um, inaccurate or, or insufficiently sensitive response to the uh, safety of it, the yield. And I think this is true because this was my point about first group. Um, Omnicom's dividend, we'll see what happens, but Omnicom's dividend is not like a lot of other stocks that have a four to 5% dividend yield. It should be much, much safer. They're only using half of their payout ratio. Uh, so half of their earnings, the variability in their earnings is very low. They have no tangible assets that would require reinvestment. Mm -hmm. They don't carry any meaningful long-term fixed uh, debt that, that matters at all in terms of, uh, I mean, they, they have some things, but it just there's no meaningful debt burden really, um, especially considering how much cash a, a ad agency keeps on hand and normally has when you kind of take into account the working capital situation um, because they're kind of funded by their clients that way. So theoretically, it doesn't look like they have cash, but... But really, um, they're they're fairly liquid unless everyone suddenly doesn't advertise, you know. So you no longer float. Um, so because of that, you know, it should be a much safer dividend. It wouldn't be a very safe dividend if you were trying to pay out one hundred percent. Now, theoretically, you could do it because you could borrow. And the way that the business works, unless things really went downhill, they never in the past have had a problem that way. So you could have paid everything out on a dividend for the last twenty years or something, and instead of buying back stock ever and you could have managed that by maybe slightly increasing your debt once in a while if you had to, but on average, not really having to. Um, so yeah, theoretically, they could have done it for probably 20 years. Um, and maybe that would, you know, that, that would work out better in terms of what the stock price would be. Why wouldn't it be as safe if they just paid it all out in dividends? Because you're... you're oh, because the, the very... EBS. Because of how you can vary your buybacks. Yeah. So what I'm saying is that it, having 100% dividend yield is not as safe as a 50% dividend yield in terms of the possibility that you might cut the dividend for people. I'm not, I'm not saying that there would be significant risk for creditors, um, but I am saying that it would present more of a risk. Even for creditors, I think it's safer if a company has uh, large buybacks rather than having large dividend payments. I think large dividend payments are the most dangerous thing for uh, anyone um, that way, just, to, just because they're less likely to get cut. Right. I mean, we saw that. Did they, let's see, they maintained the dividend exactly, did not increase mm -hmm. or decrease it during COVID, but let's go to buyback activity in COVID. I feel like companies are much more reluctant to pause a dividend as opposed to stopping buybacks. Mm -hmm. Now, they didn't increase it. It's the only time they haven't increased Which it. Which one? Cash flow or key ratios? Uh, cash flow. Cash flow. Yeah. So they did not increase it, though. Um, yeah, so buyback activity was net, if we look at net issuance of common stock, 
Yeah, so they did buy back in 2020. Uh, I don't know how much of that was before March, um, but it was at about what 50. That it was about two thirds less than they had the year before, about half of what they would the next year. So they cut the divi- they, they cut the buyback by 50 to 65 percent, something like that, 50 to 70 percent um, from what had been kind of their normal rate before. Cutting the dividend by 50 to 70 percent would be a big deal, mm-hmm. you know, saying let's go to a dollar 40 dividend or whatever, dollar mm-hmm. uh, 30. Um, they didn't do that. They just paused. They, they, I shouldn't say pause. They just didn't raise the dividend, which they normally raise every other year. So you saw that they were much more responsive to the dividend uh, to the buyback rather than the dividend, which is interesting, too, because they were pretty similar. Uh, yeah, the year before they were exactly similar. So they had a choice of what to do and they took the entire amount of cash they want to have more of from not buying back stock instead of from the dividend. And on top of that, they also borrowed. So if you look, the amount that they borrowed in terms of net issuance of debt is exact, you know, pretty much exactly offsetting the dividend. So they were completely committed to keeping the dividend, whereas they were willing to cut back on the buyback. Even though if we looked at the stock price, I don't know exactly what the stock price was at the time. We could check that on, on, um, uh, OTC markets, what they traded for on the chart um, back in early 2020. We do like a five year. Yeah. So those would have been pretty effective buybacks. Go low to 50 bucks. Yeah. I mean, stayed there for a few months, you know, on average. Basically, yeah. Three quarters of the year. Yeah. So they paused the buyback, presumably, <laughs> or they cut it the by, worst time. by 50% or something at the worst time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what happens with all companies, though, that mm-hmm. way. But they didn't pause the dividend, even though, in a sense, the dividend isn't. The value of the buyback would be even greater mm-hmm. at that time. Um, so it shows you how strong the the tendency to pay the dividends out that way is. Uh, but I would, you know, the thing with the free cash flow calculation is it's one of the ones that I feel is most, a lot of emails I get are about it. And it is in terms of this uh, difficulty of thinking about, I think it's pretty simple, but the the difficulty of you either have to look at it one way or the other. You can't use both. So what do they do? They say, okay, free cash flow yields 10% and it's paying a 4% dividend. There's four, like, is that, they're double counting that way? Yeah, they're double counting one or the other. Yeah. I get the same thing sometimes with earnings things too, I have to say. So like, um, as an example, this works both ways. And I don't know if it, I mean, the math is, it's basically the same. So, People will say, like, what is a company worth in terms of what it's worth if it grows or uh, doesn't grow? And what's the fair multiple for a no growth business? It shouldn't really work that way. If we think about earnings, let's say earnings are free cash flow or distributable cash, not just free cash flow, but actually dividends, buybacks, all that stuff. Okay. So a company has a P of 10 and it's growing by 10% a year. However, it has never paid a dividend and never bought back stock. Okay. It's now not paying down debt, but it's not taking on debt, right? It's growing by 10% a year. Okay. Another company is growing at 0% a year, but it's paying it all as a 10% dividend. Okay. And we could say a third company is uh, the business is growing at 0% a year. It has no dividend, but its earnings per share are growing at 10% a year because it's buying back 10% Mm -hmm. of its stock every year, right? Those companies are not, I, I think there are some that are more. I would prefer some to others because of what it says about the business and the safety of it. But really as stocks, those are not really different situations, right? They're really the same. Um, You're growing at 10% a year while paying nothing out, Mm -hmm. or you're paying everything out and not growing at all. 
There are some differences, some complications to that, but they're a lot smaller than people think. Um, I do think that like, I wouldn't want the business that's not growing at all and paying everything out. I'm not sure if I would want the business that's growing completely through reinvestment. It would depend on what the long-term future of that business is. If it's not that good, that's, that's potentially not a good business. If it's going to get better in the future, it's obviously a better thing to do. Um, but obviously, most people would pay the most for the today. This was not true in the past, but today, most people pay the most for the company that was growing, that was retaining all the earnings and growing. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. The completely reversed 100 years ago. It would be the company that's paying out everything in dividends and not growing at all that would be valued the highest. Um, so that's a change in people's focus. But I'm not sure that's really all that different in terms of the valuations that it should be put on the companies. So this question of like Omnicom's a no growth company, should it be valued much lower than other companies? Um, you know, not necessarily because it depends on what you're getting from the free cash flow. It's it's actually has a very high amount of true free cash flow that it has that it's giving back to you in dividends and buybacks. Um, I'm trying to think of what kind of company would fall in the other category. Um, I don't is I E H C still listed on uh, being able to find on QuickFS. Let's see. Mm, is it? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So I don't know if this is outdated because it it um, ended up not being uh, on list for the um, you know it went expert market mm -hmm. or whatever because yeah. there was an issue with the with the um, financial statements auditor with, stuff, right? Yeah, with with them being able to be current in their their SEC filings. Uh, however, if you look at this company long term, it grew. Look, totally different from income, right? So we'll just look at 2011 through 2020. Uh, revenue more than doubled. You got revenue going from 14 yep. to 32 million. Um, you've got some increase. You know, if we take out the COVID year, uh, you have almost a doubling in operating profit, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, if you notice, though, there's no dividends, uh, right? You can see that Correct, there's yep. no dividends. And if we can go to the income or the cash flow statement or the income statement, uh, we can also see that we don't have any evidence of um, share, uh, buybacks. share buybacks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so no share buybacks and no uh, dividends. Okay, so then let's go to the overview and look at how they grew. So they grew at about revenue at about ten percent a year, EPS at about eight to nine percent a year. Um, this company wasn't necessarily valued more highly than Omnicom. They, they were often valued at around the same or something. This is a much smaller company. This is a tiny, tiny microcap, um, but. It would seem like a growth company that people would be looking at saying, oh, this one grows a lot more, so I should pay a much higher multiple for it. Uh, but that's not necessarily true. It becomes true in later years if they can get their return on equity up to that level and keep it there. But in general, if you're growing, uh, as was the case here, your you're, um, EPS by 8 to 9% a year while retaining everything, then that is not something that's worth a lot more. Uh, than something that isn't growing at all. And then in terms of the underlying numbers that you have in terms of quality of earnings, historically, and maybe this will get better in the future, uh, it's very tied to whether the growth would con would eventually get much more profitable because as you can see, free cash flow generation is close to nil. Um, uh, there's no growth in free cash flow. And then you have uh, you have some free cash flow reported in recent years, but the growth rate in free cash flow is nothing. basically nothing. Mm -hmm. And uh, asset growth is high. If we look at the balance sheet, for instance, you can see this. 
um, you can see that total assets uh, went from six million to twenty nine million. Um, whereas if we look at like income, for instance, which again is not a cash number, it went from um, well, operating profit didn't really at its peak operating profit increased by like a hundred percent or something, but obviously a much greater increase, about five times increase um in assets versus only about a you know um uh two point something times increase at its peak and it was wobbly um in operating profit so my point is uh when we think about it philosophically what's the difference here well in the case of omnicom you're getting your 10 percent of your return uh, or whatever it was, you know, you, it wasn't 10% of your 10 years ago because it wasn't trading at a 10 times multiple, but say you bought it at today's multiple 10 mm -hmm. years ago. Uh, your return is completely in the buybacks and the dividends. With um, IEH Corporation, uh, you're getting a 10% growth rate, but you're not getting any buybacks or dividends. And so the question is what you're getting, is it worth more? And what I was saying there is it's doubtful whether what you're getting is worth more. What you're getting is a business, which, you know, it depends on what numbers you use. So like, for instance, this is a pre-tax return on capital of 15%. Mm -hmm. So maybe you're getting a better return than 10% when you pay taxes on that. But of course, that's a earnings number. Mm -hmm. That's not a cash number. Mm -hmm. And when we looked a little deeper into the cash and the assets, we had some doubts about whether the quality of the earnings was so high that, that, that on a free cash flow basis, that was really true. Omnicom is a little bit reversed. When we tried to look at the free cash numbers, even adjusted for the acquisitions that we said, the stock compensation, free cash will line up very nicely with, um, with reported earnings. So it's the cash number that matters more. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so in the case of IEH Corporation, what you're getting is more and more inventory for more and more sales, right, year after year for the last 10 years. And it's just another way of getting paid, yeah. right? So you're getting a bigger and bigger business, which is fine. You know, over time, that can work out better uh, versus the case of where you get like a shrinking share count rising dividend or whatever in the case of like Omnicom. Like Omnicom is giving you some cash and having a shrinking share count and the business isn't growing. This business is growing. You're getting a bigger business over This you're getting is more of this business over time. Uh, it matters a great deal. You would much rather the, the IEH uh, capital allocation if you're sure that the business is a really strong one. So when we looked at like Home Depot and things like mm -hmm. that, if they are reinvesting, yeah, their numbers are so high. Mm -hmm. Yeah, their cash numbers are so high in terms of cash returns on capital employed um, are so high that it's clear that a reinvestment in that business is worth a lot more than a dollar. But here it's not clear that that's the case. And so if that's not clear, then why is a dollar reinvested in a business if it doesn't create more than a dollar value better than a dollar paid out in dividends or a dollar in buybacks? You know, um, so you can have a company that has 0% revenue growth and 10%. And this is a good example because it's literally what the difference is with Omnicom and IEH. And I would say 10 years ago, if you bought them, what should their PEs be? I'm not sure their PEs should have been different. I think that if we were trying 10 years ago to figure out the math of telling us what the next 10 years will be like, mm -hmm. what the 2010s would have been like for each company, they should have been pretty close in terms of the numbers. Because nothing, even though this thing grew double digits, it grew... Uh, revenue by 10% a year, it actually had fairly similar, you know, value creation and distribution as something that grew 0%. Um, and of course, you know, I mean, in this particular case, there's also the questions about 
exactly the value of the inventory now and stuff. So if that if that turns out not to be so great, then maybe it didn't even create as much as we see in these numbers. Mm-hmm. But I'm saying if these numbers were were the uh, were, were the factual numbers, um, that based on that, something that produces almost no free cash flow, uh, but grows reported earnings by 10% a year, isn't really um, going to, shouldn't really be valued um, more highly just because it grows versus something that pays it all back to you or that creates all that earnings growth through through financial engineering, through buying back all the stock. But that isn't to say you should prefer one over the other. I'm not saying the buybacks and the um, uh, dividends are better. I'm saying that they all, they all are actually pretty similar. And the danger of thinking that they're not similar is due a lot to the, the double counting, mm-hmm. right? To thinking like in this case, oh, it grows. And then I get some benefit from, you know, from other things that, that um, happen there. Whereas in the case of, um, of Omnicom, so the double counting here, I think, is not usually an issue. Um, I think most people look at something that purely grows and can calculate it fairly easily. Right? They say it's going to grow 10% a year for 10 years or whatever, and then I'm going to sell it at X multiple. And my return is going to be that. Mm-hmm. You know, they calculate it that way. I think it becomes an issue where there's a mix of buybacks, dividends, growth, all that stuff together where the, the confusion comes in, is trying to see how they all work together. And that's where I think people get confused. I think they're very good at valuing that's all payout and nothing else, which is rare you know, in today's market. And they're very good at valuing something that's all growth, but isn't paying you anything today. Mm-hmm. The ones that are more complicated are these ones where it's a mixed situation. It'd be an interesting uh, blog post, like do the math of it all so people could see. see yeah. It all firsthand. Yeah. And then the, the problem that comes up with that always, of course, is people say, well, did the buybacks make sense, for instance? So mm-hmm. like in this case, they don't. Right, because if the multiple contracts while you're doing the buybacks by that amount, it contracted from say 15 in some of these cases to 10, then also it doesn't pay off, mm-hmm. which is true, you know, for the people on the stock during that time. Um, then I guess you would rather have dividends that way, but of course, in the long run, it may make better sense for you. I mean, do you think people just change the value of or change the definition of like what it means to value a company. Like you look at like an IHC that doesn't generate free cash flow, and then you look at like an Omicom. I mean, if you think about the value being the cash you could take out over its lifetime, you can't take anything out of IHC. Right, but presumably, and again, we don't, I don't have enough insight into that business and they have the accounting thing, but presumably uh, if they weren't growing, they would be generating free cash flow. Um, that's the assumption there, mm-hmm. uh, because as now, now that's a debatable assumption because the assets in some ways actually grew faster than some other numbers of the company. So the turns slowed down on some things. So it's a little debatable that that's entirely true, but that's the, the idea that I always talk about, like the theoretical ideas. You want to look at the steady state free cash flow. Mm-hmm. I don't have any problem with a company that produces no free cash flow. I think that's terrific. If. They're reinvesting high returns on capital, return on right. equity. Yeah. Yes. I think that's true. Um, I have no problem with the company that has no free cash flow if it if it means that it will generate more free cash flow tomorrow. That's what we talked about with the market value test. Difficulty of that is they can always come up with with things in a presentation. I'm sure I, I'm not sure because I didn't read the presentation, but probably naked wines 
said that our investment in advertising and and whatever in customer acquisition things will pay off in such a way that there were the payback period and all of that makes it look like a good IRR better maybe even than the IRR of Omnicom buying back their stock or of IEH uh you know growing inventory and, and things like that um so they might be saying the payback is even better and in that case when you put that into a model you can come up with numbers that say that this will work out better and that you should even lose money up front and advertise more and acquire more customers and all um because it'll pay off later you know um and i think that if somehow you could calculate that as an investor and be comfortable with it then that would be true yeah um but it's difficult to figure out that way because what you're doing in those cases what's happening is you're saying let's say revenue growth or something you it's a really high number but there's no profitability in fact it's negative this is a big issue with some companies i don't know do you have a company that has strong revenue growth but no profits you could do amazon companies. for a long time but that's uh, I mean, probably in a bad the last example. 10 years um when that show on quick fs twitter twitter or oh i gotta go with snap okay snap so if we look you can see that snap has strong revenue growth and we've talked about before is like the steady state idea so in theory you could say okay well once they break even the fact that they have such high revenue growth means that actually if they uh that they that they could be creating more value in the market each year that you know that the market they should maybe pass the market value test even though they don't officially have reported earnings mm -hmm. what they're spending should actually pass the market value test in the sense that these losses are justified you could look at these losses as like reinvestment in the company right so theoretically there's some level at which a certain level of revenue growth if it's the right kind of revenue growth even though it creates a loss should uh justify that loss and create result in more market value you can see that with you know cable cowboy cable companies um or you know we've talked about with insurance companies on individual uh added policies they should be able to calculate that by having a loss on this policy in the first year we're actually creating value long term same thing with adding subscribers even though we're reporting losses in the first year or two or whatever um it actually is cre should create market value it's actually increasing the intrinsic value of our company mm -hmm. so same thing here where there should be some revenue growth rate that would make sense that the losses are justified by doing that but you have to figure out what that is you know so like um the amounts that they lost you know so like they had an increase of a hundred percent in in one year for instance um which added let's see so for instance in uh from 27 so this is where the issue gets in so for instance here here's one that's unlikely to have added value from 2017 to 2018 they added 300 million dollars in revenue um and they generated what three point is this right that can't be right 3.5 billion dollars in a loss wouldn't surprise me how big was the company even back in 2017 like market capitalization no i just mean like yeah um okay so that that seems to be a very big number it's much smaller in other years so so maybe that was a something strange some accounting there. thing maybe uh yeah maybe um but they lost a billion in in 2018 2019. so let's take those years um you know 
I don't know. I mean, they're basing on obviously user value that might show up in revenue much, much later. I mean, if you take Facebook, right, they added a lot of users and then they got to scale and yeah. they added value later. Um, you could figure out how much that is worth in terms of subscribers and, and things like that. Uh, but these are fairly high numbers in terms of operating losses versus what they could be worth in the future. Um, but you could calculate based on like a subscriber basis. Um, the difficulty, again, is just the the market value test of it, that these things that people think will outgrow what they've put into it. You know, I looked at Uber for the last 10 years or something, and the, it's a very large cumulative loss that mm -hmm. they have. Um, and because of that, you know, those numbers were huge. I mean, at times they were losing $4 billion a year or something. Um, they added up cumulatively to a very large number, which when you compare it to things like their market cap now, I mean, their market cap now is way lower than it should be. We, we don't know. But if it's not way lower than it should be, then the problem is that the amount of money that was lost in the earlier years means that there's not been a lot of value creation. Uh, because cumulatively, you can see that they lost... Um, well, anyway, they lost over 20 billion dollars in uh, mm -hmm. in operating uh, pre-tax now obviously if you generate income on that eventually you reduce your tax burden mm -hmm. but um you had uh yeah over 25 billion lost in the last crazy uh, six or seven what's years. the market cap today 44 billion that's 45. the problem right yeah. so if you had lost that amount of money but but we don't know but of course we're using the market cap so that may be totally unfair yeah mm -hmm. and this market cap is based on um two times a little bit more, two times price to sales. Um, it depends on how mature the business is and all of that. But it does mean that you would have to have, I mean, using these numbers, for instance, you would have to have like 20% margin or something pretty fast to say that you added much value and the value you added isn't huge. It might mean that for every dollar that you burned, you eventually generate $2 in value, which given the time difference between that, you know, we're talking about single digit type returns. Mm -hmm. That, you know, in terms of returns that were generated on those losses. Again, if you generate a lot of profitability in the future, you, you do pay less in taxes. So that offsets a little bit. But, you know, you're, you're talking about maybe, maybe you can call it with arguments that they generated a 10% type return on those losses, right? By generating the revenue. But in other words, saying that if instead of doing that five or, or six, let's say six or seven years ago, instead of investing in Uber, you invest in something that had a 10% yield, you know, which is similar to the other businesses that we just showed you, would that have worked out as good or better um, for what's going to happen long run in Uber? That is, if you invested that many years ago in like Omnicom or whatever, would that have made as much sense as, as an Uber? Um, and that's how you try to compare the things about what the losses are as a form of the market value test, like we said. So the market value test is which way that, that the capital allocation works. Because it, this is a new thing, but honestly, the the most, the capital allocation thing that we've seen in the last 10 years, the really big trend in that way, the one that really matters is the decision to have losses and to continue and to grow the company while generating losses. That's the big capital allocation thing is, is the naked wines type thing mm -hmm. is to generate significant losses uh, on the hopes of uh, that your model about what the future returns will be uh, justifies it. So it's that investment. It's an investment in a loss to gain subscribers or users or whatever, um, rather than, you know, say things like paying out in dividends and and um, buying back stock and all that. Those those haven't made as much of a difference 
in terms of the returns that we've seen from companies. The, the bigger one has been the decision to run losses or not. Um, because some competitors, you know, some of these industries have decided that they're willing to run very large losses. And, and, and investors are, have decided that they're willing to fund those losses as well. Yes, they did until recently, right? And so there's a change in interest rates, whatever, change in attitudes about how quick you, quickly you want to pay back. And that, that may be a big factor in what we see about like what capital allocation you'll see going forward. Is the capital allocation that you might have from companies reflects kind of the, the way the market's rewarding things. So it's kind of Warren Buffett's market value test. Mm -hmm. They tend to respond to the things that they think are generating uh, higher stock prices, right? What is getting rewarded in the market. If the market's rewarding acquisitions, you'll see acquisitions. If not, you won't. You know, what was the uh, conglomerate era um, was all about doing that and the market was rewarding it. Then there was a point where the market was punishing that and there was a discount on it. Then, of course, people don't want to do that. Um, if there's a point where it's all about growth, then people will pursue that growth. Companies will pursue that growth um, more, more than they will pursue, say, paying out dividends or buying back stock or whatever else they see. That way it's being effective. Obviously, stock buybacks have gotten really popular versus what they were a few decades ago. And some of that is because of the way that they're um, rewarded or at least not penalized versus paying dividends. So a few decades ago, probably there would have been a really strong preference for dividends. That would, you know, for companies that had dividends, high dividends would be rewarded and raised them all the time. It would be rewarded much more than companies that buy back their stock all the time. Because like we talked about VeriSign, right? Mm -hmm. So if we look at VeriSign. This is a company that pays no dividends. And the, correct, it pays no dividend. I believe that's true from last year. No, they buy that majority of stock. Yeah. Yeah, so that's right. Yeah, so they've so then they've never paid a dividend. And so they completely do it through buybacks. Um, that, you know, a few decades ago, that might not have gotten you as high a uh, multiple. Because the complaint would be they don't pay a dividend and they don't grow that much. Mm -hmm. So they don't grow that much, but then they do grow their earnings per share, but they grow their earnings per share through doing these buybacks. You know, like the, the complaint would be the, the top line number isn't really that great. So how would you, this is a good example, right? EV to free cash flow 25 times, right? Mm -hmm. So the yield on that's like what, 4%? Yeah. How would you think about what return you could expect from a company like Veriside? They do grow a 10 year revenue CAGR 5.6%. So they do raise price and stuff like that. Um, but they do take, as you could see, basically all their free cash flow and buy back their stock. How would you think about how you could get your return in VeriSign? I think it would be- Because they don't pay dividends. Right, I think it would be difficult. I don't know the business well enough to know. But the reason why I would say that is because of what the margins are right now. So the issue that you have is when you have margins that are very high like this, the incremental increase that you can get from any improvements that you have become very small. Very, very small. For instance, the free cash flow margin here is 55%, right? So to give, so to give you an <laughs> so idea. Damn high. You just don't see a lot of companies like that. Right. So to give you an idea, let's look at their gross profit less operating means that their SG&A is probably about 20%. Okay. Let's say that somehow they're able to cut it to like the lowest that any company has. You know, I'm sure there's some companies that have lower, but about 10%. 
right? So somehow they're able to drastically cut it. That it's cut expenses in half. This would be a miracle if they did this. Well, if they do that, that adds ten percent. Add ten percent of their free cash flow. Ten percent increase there is um, going to give you less than a twenty percent increase per share in it. So that um, huge decrease, which would be, you know, that's talking about running a company as efficiently as humanly possible. Um, causes a very small increase in the the earnings numbers that you see, right? So like, for instance, you're talking about the yield. If the free cash flow yield is 4%, the number that I just did that way, doing that means that we're up to five and a quarter percent or something, the free cash flow yield. It hasn't really moved it a huge amount. And that was just for me saying, okay, let's cut SG&A in half, right? Mm -hmm. Now let's look at a company that has um, SG&A of like 20% or whatever, but their gross margins are 30%. They cut in half they double their free cash flow mm -hmm. margins, right? Yeah. Well, what I'm saying is not that unusual. Most companies have margins that are about one-fifth the size of VeriSign, uh, if not lower, actually a bit lower. So that means the responsiveness to improvements in the business is much greater than it can possibly be at VeriSign. So this isn't a knock on the business. It's great that they have really high margins, but having these really high margins means that without a lot of growth, it's very hard to have improvements in the business. So it's very, to me, very, very sensitive to price. Do I like this business? It seems very durable. It has some revenue growth, uh, capital light, all those things, wonderful, if you get it at a really good price. But if you pay too much, it's very hard, if you pay some amount uh, you know, that, that seems high, it's very hard to see how that could possibly um, lead to really strong returns because how do you squeeze more out of what you have with the business? The simplest way of looking at this is, is to say, what's the problem here? The problem is I'm paying too high a price to sales. Mm -hmm. The way I think about it is, yes, it has a moat, but it doesn't have like a reinvestment moat, right? So like, I think this would be a situation where VeriSign would be very attractive to me if it's like you said, at a price earnings or of right. you know ten to fifteen or an EV to free cash flow of ten to fifteen or whatever. Like it'd be more like a a multiple flip in a way. Yeah. I wouldn't be thinking about like, oh, how big can it grow? What do they do with their cash flow? Do they reinvest? Because I mean they don't. They just pay it all out. Right. But it does matter what they do with their cash flow because they buy it all back in stock, which means that's even more sensitive to the price thing I just I meant from like a CapEx perspective. Right. Okay. So um it's very, very sensitive to price is what I would say. Yeah, I would yeah. agree with that. If it was the same sort of situation, but they were a smaller scale and they didn't have the margins yet that they have now, you know, and you could see that improvement, then it would be very different because then earnings could grow a lot faster potentially than sales. Mm -hmm. But when you have something where the margins are this high already, you run into that problem. And especially with a mature business, to have such a high price to sales is a real problem. You know, I always say more than 10 times price to sales, you really don't want to touch those companies. Uh, the losses can be so big that you can have in it, and it's so hard to get good returns in it. The exception, I don't, I don't know that's really an exception, but the, the argument that people could always make is for those companies that are very early in their history of commercializing their, their base of customers. So what if you had a very sticky audience base or something, but you just didn't have to be charging them a lot? So like, let's say Netflix, they are charging uh, on a subscription basis, but let's say Netflix has this huge base of customers Maybe they're the people who share the passwords. Maybe they're people who who would um, be more valuable than their subscription uh, if they were instead ad supported. 
So maybe there's this huge amount of um, profit potential in Netflix if it was ad supported, right? Instead of being purely subscription based. That is a valid argument because they really do have subscribers who really do like the service and might very well stick with it if it had ads on it. But that's not priced in in terms of seeing it in revenue. So that's where you get to the other metrics like price to subscriber. Um, but generally, the warning sign here about why there's sort of a cap to how good I think your returns can get in this. And it, you might have a high chance of having decent returns no matter what. But having really strong returns is hard in a company like VeriSign simply because the price to sales is so high. It's a handicapping thing, right? Yeah, so strong like, business, great margins, everything. But if you're worried about your future return, how do you underwrite that? Where are you going to get that return from? Yeah, what I would just say to people is you look at the P and you say, this is not an inappropriate P for such a high quality business. But look at the price to sales because it is way more expensive than you think in terms of what it's potential about what it can do versus potential because there's a huge difference between paying a P. Uh, paying a PE of 20, 25 times, something like that, and a price to sales of three, four, then of a PE of 25 and a price to sales of 14. Mm -hmm. It's very different uh, just because of the, the economics of how operating leverage works that way. Um, you can't really squeeze much more blood out of a certain dollar of sales. It's just very hard to do. So sales is a very hard cap usually. Um, for an asset-heavy company, book is a very hard cap, right? Mm -hmm. um, but when pe so, like when people, when we look at a company, and I say this really just looks overvalued. Don't do this. It's not because of a PE issue. It's usually P to B for an asset-heavy company, and for other kinds of companies, it's usually the price to sales. I'm just saying that price to sales is just too high. There's not a lot. That that's a pretty permanent cap that you get on. It's such a hard handicap for you to have to start with paying such a high price. Whereas PE can move a lot faster because those margins could improve and over in a sure, few years yeah. you could suddenly see a lot of earnings growth. Usually that's, and we can see that here with VeriSign for instance, with the combination of the buybacks, uh, there's a tax change and, um, and improving margins, operating margins improved by what, 13% uh, over that mm -hmm. time period, yeah. Um, the, that combination gave them an increase in earnings per share of 24, 23% a year versus only 6% a year in revenue. So you can see the effect of what I'm saying about a price to sales cap being a much harder one. The price to sales couldn't move that much over those 10 years because revenue only grew five to 6% a year. Mm -hmm. That's not gonna shift that number a lot. It's still gonna look expensive on that. But you pay what looks like an expensive P at the beginning of that period. And it doesn't look like an expensive P now because the earnings per share works so well. So even though we always talk about P because that's sort of the logical one that we all like to go back to and it helps us compare all companies across it. Uh, that's much more um, open to interpretation about what the right PE is to pay for a company than price to sales and price to book. Really high price to sales and really high price to book are just much more of an obstacle that's impossible to overcome versus uh, PE. And that's actually the numbers that I use. Like when I talk about Omnicom, we're talking about PE all the time, but I look at it and say, based on the business and everything, what's the right price? I'm looking at price to sales. Got it, cool. Well, I wanted to, uh, we have a lot of questions, looks like, uh, for the AMA, but we're already over, we're at two hours and 16 minutes, so we'll save that. 
for next week. I wanted to show you this. So I finished uh, After Steve, which was okay. a great book. Um, but in it, they talked about how Buffett came to invest in Apple. And I thought it was interesting. Ted Weschel actually was the first investor in it's Apple. It's revealed in this yeah, book. So they okay. revealed it. I was always curious if it was Ted or Todd. I kind of mm -hmm. was skewing more towards uh, Ted. Ted. Personally, okay. I was. Um, but he was talking about like why Ted was interested in it. He accumulated a billion dollar stake when it was a... How does this book know all these facts? Uh, maybe he spoke to, right. I'm not sure. But uh, it says, on a visit to New York, Weschler talked with Berkshire Hathaway board member David Sandy Gotsman about his interest in Apple. And the 90-year-old Gotsman had become a billionaire after founding the investment, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Um, basically, he told Weschler that he took his iPhone with him everywhere and had been devastated when it slipped out of his pocket into the back of a taxi. He said, I felt like I lost a piece of my soul. So Weschel actually relayed this to Buffett. And Buffett thought it was crazy that somebody as old as Gottsman and Buffett, you know, in their generation felt like that. So Buffett went back and uh, did more research on it. And he concluded that uh, the product was much more like uh, a modern day craft macaroni and cheese it was much more about the brand the ecosystem mm -hmm. stuff like that so i thought that was interesting to read in the book that a it was ted and then i know we had mentioned in the past that ted did or somebody did bring it to buffett uh i have heard this story before but it was uh great to actually read about it hmm. so good book good book anyways good job out of you uh this is a great podcast on capital allocation we will go over all of the questions asked uh, on the next podcast, okay. which will be our first podcast since 2020 recorded over Zoom. All right. So looking forward to that. Uh, if you're listening now and you want to make sure you get a question in, go to this tweet because uh, this is going to be up for a week and we will record the following week. The best podcasts we do are the ones uh where we have a topic and then we don't even get to that topic because <laughs> we just kind of went a different direction so the next one will be uh yeah. twitter questions yep. yeah because so yep. lane maxwell sentenced to 20 years in prison what's happening from twitter interesting anyways i want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us uh go to that tweet that thread uh to come ask a question and we'll pull it up for the podcast we're going to do every single question as much as possible. <laughs> Maybe next week I'll give us more time so we make sure we can get through all of it. Yeah. Um, uh, so go to my Twitter, at Focus Compound. If you're watching us on YouTube, make sure you hit the subscribe button wherever you are listening to us on the podcast side of things, rating and review, and uh, hitting that subscribe button is great for the pod. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us. We appreciate all the support. We are still the number one value investing podcast in the world, and we're happy that everyone is here with us. <laughs> It's been a lot of fun and we will see you in the next podcast next week. Thank you so much. Take care.